Mac Power Users, Episode 237, Workflows with John Syracuse. It's David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. Hi, Katie. Hey, David. How are you? Good. And with us tonight, we have back since uh, May 2012, we had John Syracuse on the show, episode 87. John is back. Welcome to the show, John. It's good to be back. It feels like I was just here yesterday. I, I know. Well, we, <laughs> been a little longer than that. Yeah, we, we were just mentioning before we started recording that you've written three OS ten reviews since we last saw you, yeah. which to me sounds so daunting. I don't even know how you do it, but the... Um, but well, it's it's been a lot of water under the bridge, so we thought it'd be fun to have you back. I mean, you're an iPhone owner now. Yeah, Myth- imagine whoever thought it would happen. But mythically, John John Syracuse, because you were you were the big iPod Touch advocate for so long. Everybody's like, he's never going to get an iPhone. And I don't know if I was an advocate, but I was definitely a customer. And the, the way they got me to buy an iPhone is they just stopped updating the iPod yeah, Touch. That's right. the way to do it. It worked, right? <laughs> yeah, at a certain point, it just becomes untenable. I was but. Uh, and we kept buying them too. Like uh, I bought one for my son as well. Like, and, you know, every year I'd buy another iPod Touch for somebody, and it, and it was the same one. There was it wasn't changing. The fifth generation iPod Touch. Is yeah, I think still... it's isn't it the iPhone five generation hardware that's yeah. The it's iPod a, Touch, yeah. I think it's a 4S. I don't know. Wow. The 4S cuts or whatever it is. It's super old uh, and it's slow. And then eventually just the world moves on, and you just gonna be like, I, I can't, I can't keep using this thing. It's too slow. It's you know, I wonder. I wonder if they're going to just give up on it. Maybe you know they they've got the you know the iPad Mini now, which is a popular thing for kids. Maybe people have just not buying enough of. I don't know. Yeah, whenever they show, whenever I see a sales breakdown, I don't know if these are official or guessing or whatever that tries to include the iPod Touch. It's a really small sliver, disappointingly small. So it kind of makes sense that they're deprioritizing it at the very least if it goes away it goes away but anyway it's too late for me i've got an iphone and a stupid monthly bill for it <laughs> okay well you're like the rest of us but the um i thought we'd start the show though by actually just kind of and we're definitely going to come back to the phone stuff because i want to hear about this because I, I don't just in my mind I, i'm thinking that you've thought through every bit of it more than i have despite the fact that i've owned the iphone since the very first one you've probably got some things figured out i haven't thought about yet but the um but i wanted to start because i know you're you know primarily you're the mac guy you're the guy who writes the os 10 the legendary os 10 review every year and you work every day as a as a programmer using your mac that's right so uh, and we, I went back and listened to the old show, and we spent a lot of time in that show talking about how you write those reviews. And I suspect it hasn't changed that much back then. I guess just a quick uh, follow-up. You, you were writing them largely in BB Edit at the time. Yep, that's still the case. Still the weapon of choice. And and one of the things you had said in that was, I believe you were talking about the way you outline it in BB Edit and just kind of like as a skeleton and then start putting meat on the bones as you work your way through. Yeah. Um, do you use any other apps at this point to write those reviews or is it, is it just primarily you start in BB edit and finish in BB edit? I think I, I have only vague memories of that, uh, that show from 2012, but I think yeah. my system is more or less the same, like a, a, a collection of note taking applications that I use. And I think I probably mentioned them all last time, like your Jimbo and, uh, plain old text edit for notes and also simple note with the iOS app and the web app. Yeah. And, and actually, every once in a while, the actual notes application, if something occurs to me when I'm about to fall asleep, I just grab my phone off the nightstand and fire up the little yellow Apple Notes application and throw something in there. Yeah. That's just sort of 
you know, collecting stuff. And it's it would maybe it would be nice to collect everything in one place. At various times, it'd be like, uh, you know, all my notes are going to be in Yojimbo this time. It just never works out. Like, they're all in lots of places. And I, I end up copying and pasting them into trying to coalesce them, and there's duplication or whatever. That's just the the noise and, and the mess. Uh, once the writing actually starts, it's one, one file in BBEdit, and that's what it is. It's one repeatedly saved file in BBEdit over and over again, and I just uh, built up that way. And I don't, I don't think my tool set has changed since, uh, well, for years. You know, I've been using BBEdit since version 2. Point whatever, you know, back in the day. I've started using it. We had Jason Snell on a few months ago, and he was talking, because he writes all of his stuff in BBEdit, too. And I, I for uh, several years now, have been a fan of this Byword application, which is just an outstanding little text editor that syncs really easily. It's it's one of the the poster children for iCloud. And the iCloud syncs really well, and I can open up the file on my iPad or my phone or my Mac and just pick up where I left off, and everything's great. But I thought, you know what, I'm going to give BBEdit a real shot. So I've, I've been kind of testing the waters myself lately. Uh, now, when you work on those big outlines, do you do much work? Because I know you do have an iPad, and you like to use that as well. Do you do much of the writing itself on the iPad? Never. I've never written anything of any appreciable length on my iPad. I don't. That just doesn't doesn't compute for me. Doesn't doesn't work for me. Well, bless you, because it saves you so much headache. Because I, I'm always trying to be able to open everything everywhere, and and I spend a lot of time hoop jumping so I can do that. Now, when we talked last time, you were struggling with a method for you know figuring out how you were going to take notes, like at WWDC during the sessions, and were you going to borrow a MacBook Air? Were you going to take a MacBook? Were you going to go with an iPad and an origami case? Did you ever find a solution that worked well for you, or? So what it ended up doing was I got the the wing stand. Have you ever heard of that? It's I, like I don't a little. So. It's like two little plastic, two tiny little plastic things that let you. Uh, w- one part of the plastic thing lets you clip in the Apple Bluetooth keyboard. Okay. You know the little little aluminum thing. So like yeah. the, the the big cylinder on the back that holds the batteries that right. clicks into these two little semicircle things, right? And the other part of it has a little divot that you rest the iPad in. So this is a very precarious arrangement where I have my iPad three sort of click together with an Apple keyboard. That's a full-size keyboard, right? Right. And that's how I was taking notes, with the full-size keyboard using the iPad as a little screen, all sort of precariously balanced on my knees while I was doing stuff. Um, I did also I also brought my big honking 15-inch laptop with me. And uh, at one of the recent WWCs, I got a loaner hardware from Apple for, the, uh, for a modern 15-inch laptop that was much lighter than my big clunker was. Yeah. Uh, and I used all of those for taking notes at various times. Now, that not the wing stand, that's like the molded plastic? They're just like two little things. You can yep. almost put them in your pocket, right? Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's just another little thing in the case. Like, none of those solutions were satisfactory. Uh, MacBook Air would have been way better. I just never managed to get one that I could bring with me. Well, maybe maybe next year you can take a 12-inch a ultralight something-something with one port. Yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> yeah. The um. Uh. So, John. The uh. So, what is the the hardware you're using in 2015? Oh, that see that hasn't changed because oh. <laughs> so I, I'm still using my 2008 Mac Pro. I was all excited to buy the new Mac Pro until the prices and specs came out, and it was like, boy, that's a lot of money and. It wasn't, I mean, obviously every part of it was better than what I have now, but it wasn't better enough. Like, I was really hoping it would be retina capable. Like, that. basically, I wanted it to have the screen that the current 5K iMac has, and it couldn't drive that screen. Um, and I wanted the video card to be a little bit beefier for gaming purposes and less beefy for, you know, 
3D uh, art, which I don't do at all. So I didn't need two video cards with 12 gigs of VRAM. I needed one much cheaper video card that is nevertheless better at playing games. And so I wasn't a good fit for uh, what I wanted to do. So instead, I just threw uh, a better video card and an SSD into this 2008 Mac Pro. And I'm just seeing how long I can hang on. How long can I keep using this thing before, you know, so when the next round of Mac Pros come out, hopefully they'll be able to drive what I hope will be an Apple monitor that it uses the same screen as the 5K iMac, but comes without the iMac part inside it. And I'll consider that if that's not ridiculously expensive. Now, the iMac wouldn't be a solution for you because of the gaming aspect. Is that that correct? I had some high hopes for it, but it's like, oh, the screen uses less power, so maybe they could put a better video card in. But looking at the the gaming uh, performance numbers for even the top-end video card of the 5K iMac, it's really disappointing. that It's not even much better than the one it replaces, and in some cases it's actually worse than the one it replaces because of thermal throttling issues. I mean, it's not a gaming machine. Like, it's not... That's not what it's made for, but it just does not fill that role very well, so... And, you know, really, sadly, the problem for someone like you who really likes to play computer games is... None of the top Apple hardware is really a gaming machine at this point. Yeah, I mean, they're all adequate. Like, there's not there's nothing wrong. If I got a Mac Pro, it would play games fine. It's no game that I want to play that it can't play, but it's they're so expensive. You're like, I need to be able to play games on this thing for years. So this 2008 Mac Pro was a great investment because I've replaced the video card multiple times. Uh, that's something I generally wouldn't be able to do on the little cylinder mac pro because that there aren't any third-party cards i don't think and on the imac same deal you can't replace the video card there either so it's not i'm I'm always trying to if i'm going to spend just this astronomical amount of money on this computer i want it to last me like as long as this 2008 mac pro has lasted me yeah i can see that and also i I don't know the status because i don't really play computer games too much uh but the what's the status of like the driver support i mean are uh, has apple really kind of embraced that game that machine for gaming yeah, it, it's all right. I mean, with, when you buy one of these Macs for gaming purposes, there's two aspects of it. One is the Mac, the games you can play on your Mac, and that has gotten a lot better around Lion or so. The drivers got a lot better, and uh, Apple has been working with game makers to very slowly, very, very slowly, but steadily make it uh, more acceptable as a gaming machine because it used to be that you take the same piece of hardware. In fact, this Mac Pro, this 2008 Mac Pro, when I first got it, uh, I would if, if a game was available on both the Mac and Windows... I play the same game on the same hardware, on, on, you know, in OS X, and then switch to Windows and get way higher frame rates. You know, mm-hmm. reboot this machine into Windows. Same hardware, right? Um, so that was like OS, driver issues, everything combined. Now the gap has narrowed, so now I'm, I don't just instinctively reboot into Windows every time I want to play a game, because first I'll try the Mac version, and if the performance is fine, I'll be like, well, this is, you know, it's good enough. And so things have gotten a lot better, but still... For the very best games, like if you want, uh, for the the cylinder Mac Pro thing, uh, it has two video cards in there. If you want to use both video cards at the same time for a game, you're best off uh, rebooting into Windows to use the crossfire arrangement. They will, they have driver support to the games. So will take advantage of both video cards at the same time. Uh, and I don't know what support for like uh, for that on the Mac is like if it exists at all. But on Windows, it's a very uh, much more common. Well, that's one of the areas where I think a Windows machine is is um got just a lot more support from manufacturers and developers all the way around for gaming. Yeah, yeah. You could, you could buy a PC that is a better performs better in games than any Mac, uh, uh, that Apple has ever sold and you can build it for way less money, but I'm 
stubbornly trying to do stick with a single nice machine that runs the OS that I like instead of having a separate gaming PC and a Mac. Yeah, and I totally get that because when you have a separate machine, there's separate maintenance you need to do. And it's a Windows PC, so probably there's more maintenance that you're going to need to do. And you've got this thing taking space in your office or on your desk or wherever you're keeping it. I'm, I'm a big fan of getting rid of that stuff whenever I can. Yeah, and then you'd have to have a KVM, or you have to have two different setups. Like, I don't have room for an entire other computer setup, so I'd have to use try to share a mouse and a keyboard. But it's just complications and mess and, you know, more wires and more products. And, you know, it's just I'm I'm stubbornly refusing to do that. It would make much more economic sense, but I'm, I want one machine. And, like, that's, that has been the, uh, the nice thing about uh, Macs for the past many years, like, it's finally the one dream machine that I always wanted. I can uh, it does Unix, which I like. It has all my Mac apps, which I like, and I can run Windows on it if I need to run a Windows game all in one machine. I'm I'm curious. Do you use Windows for anything other than running games on it? Sometimes I use it to mess with the calendar and Outlook at work because the Mac version of Outlook doesn't have all the features that I need. Okay. <laughs> and I run I run Internet Explorer for Windows. Yeah, I was gonna say because uh, you probably have to emulate, or I, I guess you would use it to to test some of your software too, right? Well, uh, I have virtual machines with various versions of Internet Explorer in them for work yeah. testing purposes. Um, and, and that Outlook thing is serious. Like, it's a lot the, the, even though Microsoft makes Office for the Mac, there are still things that I uh, try to do in their Office suite with our Exchange server that I find are easier or only possible at all with the real Windows version of Office. I got a funny email from a listener because every time we get into Microsoft Office on the Mac, I, I've kind of got this this little thing I say, well, you know, I've met, I have met some of those people at Macworld and other places. And, and they really, it, 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 I think they're serious. They're super Mac fans. I mean, these guys love their Macs. And I always kind of preface when I talk about, you know, Microsoft office on the Mac saying, well, you know, these guys really are trying, they really love it. And then I, I got a, a really nasty email from a listener saying, you got to stop saying that. Cause I don't think they're doing as good a job as they are on windows. Um, I, maybe it's just a resource thing. I don't know how many people they have working on it, but it, well, it's different people. Like yeah. it's not the same people. So, yeah. Yeah, I it, believe that the the Mac people doing the Mac version of Office do like the Mac, but yeah, I don't I don't understand what the priorities are, and I I feel like Outlook for the Mac as is a step down from uh, Entourage, which itself sort of went downhill in its later years. So it's kind of the email applications in particular I find disappointing, especially when there are things I find I can't do or that don't work reliably that do work on the windows version so now you use outlook just for your work stuff though right yes i don't think i've ever had anybody on the show who uses outlook for their personal stuff well i what i use it for my personal stuff is i don't i don't actually use it to check my email but i use it to make a local backup so i have outlook uh, on my mac and i launch it every once in a while and it just pulls down my gmail using pop to, to make essentially to make a local backup of my mail in a different format which yeah, that makes maybe sense. maybe not the best app for it but i like the fact that i'm doing it through pop because you know pop is so brain dead that like so the, the odds down. of yeah. yeah the odds of something catastrophic happening like if i used imap and something went wrong and it all of a sudden thought that i didn't have any mail like it would just start laboriously deleting it for my thing whereas pop i, f- I find is more reliable and it's not going to delete myself so it's like it's like a local archive i don't actually use it to read my email i use gmail the gmail web interface to read my email i'll tell you one thing that uh, used to make me crazy about entourage is is you know we did this show back when entourage was a thing and i remember getting the emails from listeners talking about how the entourage database would get corrupted and oh and it was all one file and so if you got a corrupted database you were done 
Yeah, that that has not improved. It's still like that in Outlook. I still Ugh. do r- routinely rebuild my Outlook. Say say I can't quit Outlook. Like Outlook won't quit, and the only way I can get it is force quit. Then basically you have to rebuild it at that point. I know you don't want to rebuild it, but I've learned through you know the hard lessons I've learned is that if you have to force click out, quit Outlook, when you relaunch it, everything will be fine. I'm sure you'll be like, oh, okay, I'm sure everything's fine there. But do not trust that. Like if you if you have to force quit Outlook or something else bad happens rebuild your database and yes it takes forever and ssd makes it much faster but like i'm just paranoid about it and it's nice like outlook the little uh what do you call the little database utility rebuilding thing that that appears when you hold down option yeah when you launch outlook it makes backups of your old databases so i have these huge multi-gigabyte backups of my email going back you know a year or two and i i manually delete those off the end when i when i'm feeling confident that the current database is good so i haven't ever lost any mail to corruption but i have had database corruption problems i think that actually has improved in outlook like i still dutifully rebuild it and everything and occasionally it says it needs to be rebuilt but i haven't actually lost anything due to the obsessive backup strategy yeah the old joke was that the microsoft outlook was really good at backing up that was the good news and the bad news was you were going to need it yeah and i think it also still does the thing where it splits out your individual messages into individual files so it's the worst of both worlds i think you have this big monolithic database and a bunch of these little tiny files around for like spotlight index and stuff so yeah. when you're running, I know this is Mac Power users, but I can't help myself. When you're running Windows, what version of Windows are you running? Uh, at work, I have all different versions. So yeah. I don't know if I have Windows 8. I think I have, uh, you know, Windows 7 64-bit, Windows 7 32-bit. Maybe I have a Windows 8 uh, one in there or Windows 8.1. Uh, I used to have an XP one. I don't think I have that anymore. Uh, I think I still have a Vista one. Like With virtual machines, I just have this big menagerie of stuff at home. I have Windows 7 and, uh, believe it or not, still XP. Okay. Why would you need XP? Because uh, everybody I still runs had. XP. Yeah, yeah and, and a surprising number of very old games work fine in it. Like, it, 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 you'll be surprised how many games still support Windows XP. Okay, well, I promise we're going to get to the stuff that you do, because our, our listeners love to talk about productivity. But I have to ask, you know, it's been three years, and uh, looking at games that are available on the Mac only, Katie, stop rolling your eyes. Okay. The games that are available on the Mac only, what's a good game or two we should be looking at? Because I, I don't know. I look in the app store and I, you know, I'm not a twitchy gamer. You know, like if you have to play those first person shooters, I'm always the guy that gets shot first. I'm terrible at that stuff. Can what you is- name a game that is only available on the Mac? I can't even think of one. Like a game that's a, only know, available on the app store, you said? On the, yeah, on the Mac. I can't no, even no, think of I, one. I don't mean it that. I mean it's a game that is available on the Mac. Oh, that is available on the Mac. Um, yeah, so because I mean a lot of our listeners aren't going to load up a Windows machine. For yeah, I, w- I would say if you if you are interested in games for the Mac, uh, your best bet is not to go to the Mac App Store, but to install Steam from Valve. Yeah, uh, not every game on Steam is available for the Mac, but tons of really good ones are. And don't be turned off by the fact that the games are super old, like. If you've never played, you know, Portal and Portal 2, even though they're very old games, they're available for the Mac. The Mac versions for them are great. Those are great games. You should play them there, you know. Same thing for something like The Walking Dead. Uh, there's Actually, they're doing it in seasons, like season one and two. That is not a technologically advanced game. There's nothing about it that's specific to the Mac, but it's available for Steam on the Mac. Those are great games. Uh, they're not. Those are definitely not Twitch games, not complicated. Uh, more of a... Uh, narrative uh type of experience yeah try to i mean like if you just go to steam and go to like the best of or highly recommended mac games like you can't go wrong there are tons of good games games at this point are getting kind of like 
uh, books, TV shows, and movies in that things don't become uninteresting even though they were created a couple of years in the past. No one's going to say, oh, you should watch Lawrence of Arabia. Like, well, nobody watches movies that old anymore. No, people still do. Like, it's fine, you know, and, and let alone something from 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, oh, I can't watch Raiders of the Lost Ark because it's an old movie. No, it's still a good movie. It's fine. Now, the games aren't at that point. You're not going to play a 20-year-old game and still think it's awesome. But uh, a 10-year-old game, yeah, that'll be fine, especially for people who are not hardcore gamers. They, The things that distinguish modern games from the older ones are probably not visible to them because older ones were simply made within the constraints. The best older games were made within the constraints that technology provided. And so uh, you won't notice the missing things because the, the, a good game uh, didn't bump up against the edges of, uh, you know, they didn't try to make a game that wasn't technically possible and then, and then sort of bump into those limits and make the game worse for it. They figured out what the machine could do and made a game within those limits and the the good ones are still really good. Yeah, because I, I always felt like the best games I enjoyed playing, and I just don't have as much time as I used to to play them, but were the ones that felt like almost like an alternative to reading a novel, except it was more interactive. You're kind of experiencing it as you go through, and how is the story going to end? And uh, to this day, I, I like sinking my teeth into a game like that where I can just take my time with it. And to a certain extent, I'm not as big of a fan as all the online interactive stuff, be, you know, the games like the multiplayer games, because I want to take it in the little bits and pieces of time that I have. Yeah, there's something, and like, uh, just within Steam on the Mac, there's something for almost anybody, you know, if you're, and you might not know what you're into if you haven't played a lot of games, like uh, Dungeon Crawlers, like Diablo, maybe that's a little bit too complicated, but you could try something like Torchlight, which is a very old, very simple game, sort of a training wheels kind of uh, point-and-click uh, Diablo type thing. Some people can't stand that. Some people who have never played a game like that do not know that they're super susceptible to a game like that. And they will say, mm, I'll try this thing out. And it's cheap. And you click around. And then, you know, 17 hours later, they're just mesmerized by this thing. Uh, especially people who are not gamers. They they have sort of haven't built up an immunity or they're, they're not cynical about these genres. And they have no idea what's out there. Maybe they're into puzzle games. Maybe they're into, you know, weird 2D uh, 8-bit style games. Uh, so when somebody is either not into games or was into games a long time ago and doesn't know what's out there. The, the, the spectrum of genres that are available is so wide that one thing, A, you shouldn't just try one game and say, well, because I didn't like this game, I, I therefore I won't like any games because that's not true. And B, there's almost certainly something that you really love in there. You just might take a little trial and error to, to find it unless you know someone who's a gamer and you can describe what you might like. But the thing is, people don't know what they might like. If they've never played a game like The Sims, they have no idea that they will become obsessed with it, right? Yeah, and I, I am totally embarrassed because i i bought a game that was i believe it was like a kickstarter project and it was a um kind of a cyberpunk game with kind of that over the shoulder perspective where you set up it looked like a lot of fun i bought it i was all excited and then i got so busy and now i'm trying to desperately log into steam to even remember the name of it i don't yeah. even have it installed on my current machine so i got to get it together john i got to get some gaming time in let me back up and ask a, a silly question, but somebody else probably has it. As someone who's not a gamer, talk to me a little bit about how Steam works. Because, you know, if someone wants to get into to gaming, you can go and you can download Steam. Um, I think it's steampowered.com. And that kind of gives you a, a platform or a store that you can then go down and, and browse. And are there trials available of these games? Or how do I figure out if this is something that I may want to play? Or, you know, yeah, what's, so what's Steam the first step? The, the innovation of Steam, and Steam wasn't always on the Mac, it was originally on the PC, was that uh, dealing with PC games 
has always been kind of annoying. Mac or right. PC, you, you go to, this is back in the day, you go to the store, you buy a cardboard box, it's got floppy disks or an optical disk in it, you bring it home, you try to install it, you find out it's not compatible with your drivers, you you go to the website, you update your drivers, you install the game, you play it, right? Huh. Then you go to the store and get a different game, and you try to install that one, and it complains about the things you just installed for the first game, and so you, you have to decide, well, will these drivers be compatible with that game, or will I have to, you know, will this be a, a transition where I can no longer play that game and now I can only play this game, or maybe Maybe both games will appear to work, but one of them will crash. And, you know, it's like that whole mess of dealing with PC games, each of which wanted to be like, I'm the most important thing in your system. Make sure everything is set up so that I am happy. Uh, and then you have to deal with where the install is. And then if, if you have like a special key or you have to have this, the optical disc in the drive back in the day for like copy protection. And so every time you wanted to play the game, you had to swap which disc was in the drive. All those nightmares Steam was trying to solve by saying it was basically like the App Store before the App Store existed. Download this little application, which will show you the Steam store, and there you will see a bunch of games, all of which you can purchase and download immediately as digital things, and Steam will manage whether or not the app is installed. Steam will manage the updates to the app if there's a patch or whatever. You don't have to go to the manufacturer's website or the publisher's website and find updates and stuff like that. All the Steam games, they'll tell you whether they will work on your system. Uh, you can uninstall them and reinstall them at any time. If you're running out of disk space or something or whatever, just say, oh, Steam, uninstall this. You still own the game. It's like exactly how a digital, you know, like the App Store works now, exactly how sort of a, a digital distribution thing should work. You have an account. That account has games. Those games may or may not be installed on a particular system. You don't lose the games by uninstalling them. It, uh, it tracks your progress with this cloud sync stuff. Most of the more modern games do this, so... If you uninstall the game, you don't lose your progress. Like, it is basically the App Store for games. Only Apple's App Store is not great for games because Apple doesn't really care about games. Uh, Steam is where it's at. And so that is the most important thing about Steam. And that's why I don't worry about my games anymore because if I buy them through Steam, it's just like I know I always own them. I know I can uninstall and reinstall them whenever I want. I know they'll automatically be kept up to date and I know I won't lose my progress. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And if uh, you're a multi-platform guy, if you're on a PC and Mac. It, yeah, yeah. A it, lot of the games, if you buy them and there's a Mac and a Windows version, you get both versions. So if you want to, that's why I'm able to do this A-B testing of like, a you know, I'll, I'll buy Portal or Portal 2 or something and I get the Mac and the Windows version at the same time. Like the game is compatible with both. You know, it's not two separate games that you have to install. So um, as for figuring out whether the game is good for you, you can read the reviews that are on. I mean, like, it's difficult for me to say as a gamer because I've, by the time I download a game, I've read a million reviews about it on gaming sites or in magazines. Um, but there are reviews and ratings uh, on Steam itself. I'm not sure if there are trials. I If there are, I've never tried them out because I always know whether I want a game or not because I'm, I'm into the scene. But that is a risk. But the other thing that Steam has is uh, Steam sales where they will deeply discount a lot of great games, especially older games. Yeah. But uh, that shouldn't deter you. And, like, deeply discount, where, like, a game will be, like, you know, $5 instead of 40 right? And then it becomes kind of like the App Store. You're like, well, if it stinks, I spent 5 bucks, no big deal. I, I That's how I played Portal. My, uh, my um, was it, 14-year-old nephew was visiting, and I wanted to do something with him. And, you know, the one thing you can do with a 14-year-old boy is, is play a video game. So we logged on to Steam and Portal was like five bucks and I'd heard about it forever. And we sat there for, you know, that's a nice game because you can finish it in a day. And we, we got through it. We had a great time and even got to hear the Jonathan Colton song at the end. We thought we were awesome. Five bucks. Yep. Done. Okay. Well, we've got, we've got some stuff we want to talk about, uh, but I guess before we get to that, we should do our first sponsor read. 
Yeah, and I want to talk to you a little bit about Automatic. And um, what is Automatic? But it is a connected car adapter that plugs directly into your car's diagnostic port, um, just like a tool that your mechanic may use. Every car since 1996 has one. And it adds a lot of great capabilities to your car. When you connect the Automatic with their free mobile app, it'll tell you if your check engine light comes on, What's going on? Is this something that you can solve yourself? Is it something that you need to take to the mechanic? If it's something that's already resolved, it lets you clear the light right there on your phone and you can save the time and expense of a trip to the mechanic. Um, It also gives you feedback on your driving habits to help you hopefully drive a little less aggressively and maybe save a little bit of money on gas. But it also has some important safety features like crash detection. Automatic can detect when you're in an accident, uh, and if you've set it up, it can call for help. If you don't respond to automatic within a set period of time, it will automatically call for help and uh, give your last known location, and a human will even stay on the line with you until help arrives. So I've got a 1997 Toyota. It doesn't have any smarts in it other than the stereo head unit that I pulled out and replaced with a Bluetooth unit. Uh, But now I can do things like check my gas mileage, figure out if I've got a problem going on with my car, um, and potentially get help in in a crash situation, all because I've got the automatic connected that's going to go ahead and pair with my iPhone uh, and use all of those smarts. They did introduce a couple of new features at CES, and one of those being Nest integration. So if you've got a Nest, you can now use automatic to heat or cool your home uh, just in time for your arrival. So you can go to automatic.com slash Nest figure out um, exactly what you want it to do. So maybe when you leave work between a certain time and a certain time, tell Automatic that you want it to heat your house or cool your house to a certain temperature, uh, and it will take care of that for you. Um, If you travel to and from work, Automatic will make it easy to track your expenses with their free uh, web dashboard so you can see all of your trips and download it. I mean, it's just got a ton of features, and you can even connect up to If This and That and do even more. Automatic costs $99.95 with no subscription fees after that. You buy it once and you're done. But we can do even better and save you 20%, and you can pick up an automatic for just $80 when you go to automatic.com slash MacPower. That's automatic.com slash MacPower. Your automatic will ship within two business days, and if you don't like it, they have a 45-day return policy with free shipping. So go check them out, and thanks to our friends over at Automatic for their support of the show. So you upgraded the uh, home uh, Mac Pro with an SSD. How how did you uh, how did you, what'd you think of that? I had been putting it off for a really long time, and you know, I, I slowly every other Mac in my life had a solid state drive either because it came with it or because it got upgraded to it. And this being the last Mac with a spinning disc, and it being like you know, quote unquote, my Mac, like the one I'm supposed to be using all the time, it was just it's just brutal. And I, the thing that was keeping stopping me from doing it is because this is where all my stuff is, and I have a lot of stuff. Yeah. And so, and you know, I, I had a 1.5 gig drive and i was using all of it you know and i you know 1.5 gigs of ssd was ridiculously expensive i'm like uh not 1.5 gigs yeah 1.5 terabytes yeah sorry yeah 1.5 megabytes yeah back in the day anyway 1.5k yeah um anyway terabyte ssds were finally available and they are expensive and i said well can I get myself down to a terabyte? Because you don't want an SSD to be filled up, right? I, I had probably yeah. like 1.2 terabytes or whatever. So I needed to delete more than 0.2. I needed to, you know, have headroom in there. So I was pretty ruthless about basically moving things to network attached storage and saying, what do I really need on my drive right here? And I got down to 
a manageable size and I bought a terabyte SSD um, and yeah and and now my life is a lot better it was expensive but you know I figure if from a 2008 machine it deserves finally an SSD but with all those drive bays I'm surprised you didn't like just put a second drive in like a spinning drive for like some of the bigger data oh no i have all i've always had all four bays filled with drives okay right? i had a, I had a you know i have my main drive and then i have a super duper clone drive and then i have a time machine drive and then i have the the boot camp drive okay gotcha so, so you don't have a slot for one just to put like your itunes library on or something like that i'm trying to avoid that type of thing where you oh, put your user accounts over here put your itunes library over there make sim links like i'm trying to keep it dead simple and basically i have my you know to, to feel safe with my one drive, I have three of them. I have my yeah. one drive, I have the super-duper backup of it, and I have my time machine drive. So that's three drives for just my stuff. And then there's yeah. boot camp, which I don't really care that much about if it gets deleted. That's the great thing about Steam. If my boot if my boot camp drive dies, so what? I'll get into a drive, put it back in there, reinstall Steam, I'll have my, all my games back. Yeah. So, John, what made the cut? I know a lot of people are struggling with filling up hard drives. Do they do they upgrade with their next machine? Do they not? I mean, SSDs have come down quite a bit in price, but they are still pretty pricey compared to rotational drives. What what did you decide to cut to get down to size? So most of my big things end up being video. Uh, lots and lots of video, television shows, movies, anime, things that I ripped from DVD and, and Blu-rays and stuff like that. And that's just stuff. Stuff is just massive. And also even just like Apple stuff, every WWC keynote that's been available in QuickTime, all a bunch of Apple's old commercials, all the, the Macworld keynotes, like the WWC videos themselves, like of all the sessions that you get if you attend, just massive amounts of video. Um, and I've wanted that to be on my main drive because my main drive is the thing that I'm obsessive about backing up. Like, I'm sure I'm not going to lose this stuff. Um, after having uh, network attached storage for a while, I finally got enough faith in that to say, okay, that is a safe place too. That is also backed up multiple times, including cloud backup. And so now I can put all my video there. So I moved all my video, almost all my video uh, onto network attached storage. And, that pretty much would be on. And then it was just a matter of wandering through with like a disk inventory X or some other application that shows you where your space is really used. Like uh, my iPhoto library is now on my wife's computer. Her Hers is the family iPhoto thing because Apple's iPhoto family management stuff stinks still. So you have to designate one computer as the family iPhoto computer. Right. But I still have my the iPhoto library as it existed at the time just before we transitioned her computer to be the iPhoto computer. So that was like, you know, hundreds of gigs of photos that I was like, well, I shouldn't delete, even though hers is, is the iPhoto computer, me having this here and having it, uh, you know, quadruple backed up like everything else, that gives me an extra piece of mind that I'm not going to lose all the kids' baby pictures. But I had to be ruthless and I had to, you know, trim that down as well. Yeah, it's, it's tough with pictures and, and everybody's looking at iPhoto like the, uh, you know, the person on life support, you know, because, you know, Apple's pretty much said this is it and we're going to have something different and nobody knows what that is. And what do you do in the meantime? It's it's really a kind of a, a pending issue right now. Yeah, that's going to be a difficult transition because I know I'm not going to trust whatever it is that Apple introduces. So I'm going to have to have a long period of time in which I have the old iPhoto thing, which, you know, is not great, but is what it is. Yeah. And then the new thing. And maybe I'll somehow get the photos in both places or maybe i'll just put the new ones in the new place i don't know what my strategy is going to be there right now we have all our digital photos that we've ever taken in a single iphoto library that has you know seventy thousand photos or something like that and it totally destroys iphoto even with an ssd it is not a great system but I, i'm hoping whatever apple comes up with next we'll be able to handle my photo library 
A few years ago, I started um, exporting out of iPhoto. I was Aperture at the time, but now I've been playing with iPhoto. But I started exporting every time we do a family you know, gathering, we have this project with these photos in it. I just export it all as JPEG. And then I have a nested set of folders um, that I've got on my transporter. And then I've got another transporter offsite with somebody. And then I've got those going to my online backup and other stuff. So I've got this kind of, um, you know, my, my emergency backup is these sets of JPEGs and nested folders. So if everything blew up, I'd at least have the pictures. Cause I know that if, if I lost all our family pictures, my wife would, I don't know. We you know, that might be the end of the marriage because <laughs> that would be a problem. Um, but it, it's rough. It's, I think it's, these are hard times right now to figure out photo management, and we're nerds. I don't know how everybody else does it. Yeah, the pro- the problem with photos in particular is a difficult problem for you know computer manufacturers to deal with because digital cameras are a relatively new thing in the grand scheme of things. Um, and you know, film photos and photo albums that is sort of a, a thing that we figured out and there was a way that it worked and people had shoeboxes and albums or whatever they had but that was fine with digital you know because the cost of actually taking a, a photo is essentially zero at this point people take tons more photos and the thing about photos is uh you, like you just keep taking more of them and you don't throw out the old ones when you when your kid turns two you don't say well we don't need the baby pictures anymore like it just you just keep them the, the collection keeps growing so technology needs to advance to keep up with the people who started taking digital pictures as soon as like digital uh, photos became a thing like they became you know popular among regular consumers and they're not they're never going to stop taking photos all they're going to it's only going to grow it's not like people are going to get a certain amount of photos and that's all the photos they're going to need and we just need to deal with you know if you have 10 gigs of photos our system works great for you that's great but you know five years from now i'm going to have more photos than that Right, I'm not going to have the same ten gigs, or and 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 as a fact, the photos kept getting bigger. Yeah, you know, say now, five years from now, one photo might be ten gigs. Well, with the I way think that'll <laughs> that'll pop out with like human perception. So, like, if you have a photo yeah. with this high enough resolution to fill a five K iMac, like you know, people are, are going to do aren't going to do billboard sized photos and want to be able to stand two inches from them. Like, the resolution will top out eventually, but the number of photos people take won't top out. You're just going to keep taking photos, and people are not good about only keeping the good ones and even if they are i still feel like over a lifetime as people age your collection of photos if you were to chart it as a you know a line a cumulative number of photos maybe the 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 curve will will you know taper down a little bit but i never think it'll reverse i think it'll just always grow and grow and grow until you basically stop taking photos and so that's the reality and google apple Facebook, Amazon, everybody needs to deal with that reality and let us give us some way to manage this. I'll tell you one tool I found that's helping me with this process because I I take a lot of pictures with my phone and I just fire down that button. In fact, Apple makes it easy to take a lot just holding the button down now. And I found this little app called Flick, F-L-I-C. And you can load it up and it, it loads all the pictures from your photo stream and you can just flick them right, I believe, is keep and left is trash or the opposite but, you know, go through that once a month and in just a couple minutes, you can get rid of like three quarters of the photos you took in the last month. Yeah, that that, that decreases your rate of growth because you yeah. don't want to grow at the rate you actually take pictures. Yeah. But the bottom line is you're not going to delete them all. So there is a rate of growth. You, yeah. you know, last yeah. month you had X number of pictures. Now you have a minimum X plus three. Right. Yeah. And so that's a slow rate of growth. But over a lifetime, that still adds up. Yeah. Well, the problem that we're going to have, and, and you mentioned it just a few minutes ago, is that, you know, Apple in the next couple of months, they said early 2015, is going to come out with a new Photos app that 
you know, I, I think some people have probably seen in beta, but it's not publicly available other than the beta on the iOS. And John, you just said, I'm not going to trust it. I'm going to run dual systems for a while. And, you know, I'm not going to trust it either. David, I don't know that you're going to trust it. You've got your backup system. But, you know, that is one area where regular consumers and everyday people, they're going to have no sympathy uh, for Apple if they don't get this right. I mean, you start messing with people's photos they're going to get pretty upset if if the syncs are wrong and if there's conflicts and people start losing data and their photos are replaced with you know low quality thumbnails or something bad happens. That's it, that's just not good. Yeah, for most people, it would actually probably be a step up because the current situation is people take pictures on their phone, think nothing of right, that's true. of anything, and then they drop their phone in a lake and then they wake up and go, oh. Well, where are those pictures? And they're nowhere. They were on that phone. That's the only place they were. They didn't enable iCloud backup, or they did until it started complaining that they ran out of space, so they didn't want to pay money, so they turned it off. Like, people's photos in general are not backed up. And so maybe that's helping the little, the little imaginary chart of the photos growth. It's like, periodically, there's an extinction event where you lose all the pictures of your, of <laughs> like your children that. because people are not people are not good about backing up. And the whole, the whole idea is you're supposed to make it as easy as possible. That's why Time Machine was such a great innovation because it made backup at least possible for people. It took the degree of difficulty for doing backups if you had a Mac way down, but it was still something you had to remember. You had to do it once. You had to buy an external drive, plug it in, turn on Time Machine, and Time Machine's reliability is so-so. But for photos, like, that's the promise of Apple's cloud thing. Like, it, you know, we'll take care of your photos for you. You still got to get over the barrier that people need to pay money for it, and it's really difficult to get people to pay money to back up their photos because they, you know, it's like trying to get them to buy more life insurance. So just... Then it doesn't seem like something you should need to. Well, this, I don't know, it'll be fine, or I shouldn't need to pay for this or whatever. But if it works as designed, Apple's like, don't worry about your pictures. You take wherever you take them, wherever they are, we'll store them all. You don't have to have them all on a hard drive. It'll just like the pictures are in the cloud. Anytime you want to look at some of them, some subset of your pictures will be, will actually be on your local machines. They all don't need to be, they're just some subset. Think of all your local machines as a local performance oriented cache of the photos that we keep in the cloud. That's the promise, the reality, like you said, if there if there's any bug at all, like you have to treat photos, they're probably the most valuable digital possession people have because they're essentially irreplaceable. You can replace yeah. applications and like work related stuff is transient, but photos have the, this emotional thing. And if the, and some, these are just the only photos of people's children that they have, right? Like yeah. they they don't take regular photos anymore. People barely people don't really make prints of them anymore either. Like maybe one or two to put in a frame, and so you just have to treat it like if these get put into a cloud. I hope Apple, you know, and it's it's an economic issue. Can Apple have like uh, you know quintuple redundant systems for every person's photo, not for free and probably not for cheap? And so it's like you know something has to give here. And, and most people are not as paranoid as the tech geeks and have you know multiple redundant local backups plus cloud backups and all this stuff. So. This is not a solved problem, uh, and I don't think it will be for a while. It's unfortunate that, economically speaking, you need to throw money at it. Like, both uh, Apple needs to throw money at it, and people need to be willing to pay for the protection of their data. And one thing I would add is that I, I think that, you know, I understand that there's a lot of people that only have photos on their phone, but I think there's a significant portion of people who are not super geeks, but they own a Mac, and they understand iPhoto and they open it and they load it and they do have photos on their Mac and iPhoto. And I, I suspect whenever this new thing goes live, it's going to say, hey, you need photos and here's photos and push this button and we'll update your library and everything will be super groovy. And 
a lot of those people will push the button and that'll be that. And that's where I think we get in trouble if it doesn't deliver. Yeah, or if it like it only converts your iPhoto library, like this photo stream is just a moving window of like what is it, thirty days or a thousand photos and stuff like that. But then you have local photos on your phone. Will it get those as well? I mean, I, I suppose again the promise is that if you enable it everywhere, no matter where your photos are, whether in an iPhoto library on your Mac, maybe in an iPhoto library on another Mac in your house, or on any of your iOS devices, like. That's what I was talking about before with families uh, that I mentioned Apple doesn't doesn't really recognize how family use their use their computers in families. You know, lots of people have iOS devices, iPads, iPhones, iPods. They take pictures with them. Sometimes multiple people have Macs, right? The family's photos is the superset of all the photos taken by all the members of the family. Sometimes they want to be separate because your teenager's pictures don't want to be mixing with your pictures. But when the whole family goes on a vacation and everyone takes pictures with their iOS devices, those are the family photos. And subdividing into like the iPhoto library on this Mac, the photo stream for this Apple ID, uh, the photos in this iPhone's camera roll. Like that's not how photos are conceptualized. It would be nice if it was just one big pool that you could subdivide, you know, as necessary. And that's a complicated, difficult thing to do with cloud backends and everything. But that's that's where we have to go. Like we have to recognize that, you know, as the title of that old hypercritical episode, you know, no Mac is an island. No iLife is an island, I think was the title of that thing. Um, you, it's We're far past the time where you can have, you know, like the designated computer that keeps the photos on it and only one person takes pictures with one camera and then you or you take, take pictures with old-fashioned cameras and you hook them all up to that thing to download the pictures to it. It just needs to be... It just needs to be as seamless as, like, email is for, for Gmail. Everyone has their own email accounts. You can get to it anywhere. And anything that supports a web browser, you can read Gmail. Gmail doesn't lose your mail. It's always there, and it works. In theory, right? I mean, I, I remember when we started recording this show so many years ago, we actually had a, a user account in the house on an iMac that was the iTunes and the iPhoto account. And everybody logged into it. They downloaded their camera sticks, but not anymore. Everybody's got got these phones. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's just, I don't know where it's going, but it, it's going to be an interesting year to see what happens because apple's this is the year apple says they've got some new solution and i i hope that it delivers yeah. and if not david's got the solution for you you said you did i said that we're gonna try and find a solution this year <laughs> <laughs> well see what you were just discussed of having the one mac with designated account and everything the forethought to do that is beyond people who are not into technology like yeah. it's not something they should like what people who are not into technology want to do is i buy a product I figured out how to take pictures with it and take pictures. I don't want to worry about where the pictures are, whose pictures they are, what what little piles the pictures are in, difference between photo stream and camera roll and the iPhoto library on individual people's Macs. Like, they conceptualize that as in, like, again, if everyone goes on vacation with all their iOS devices and they all take pictures, everyone in that family is thinking of that as the family's vacation photos. But when those same people get home with the same exact devices and go their separate ways to work and after school activities and use those same devices to take pictures, those pictures are conceptually, I don't want, these aren't family photos. This is me taking pictures goofing around with my friends, right? It's, it's the same, you know, it's the same devices being used in the same way, but conceptualized differently. And so how do you manage that? You have to sort of make sure step one, all photos are saved everywhere and you don't have to worry about dropping your phone in a lake. Step two, how do you subdivide those pictures, you know? into the family's photos versus just individual kids photos versus you know and how do you share them with each other and decide which ones other people can see it's it's actually really really complicated but we're not even at the point now where, where the photos are safe on you know after they're taken well you you can set even with the existing system you can set like a we always do a holiday or a vacation gallery and everybody 
puts up the photos that they think are worth sharing to that gallery, which kind of fixes it. But it, it you're right. It still needs a lot, yeah. a lot and of ways. Shared photo streams, I think, have been a, a good advance. Like, this is, that's the other problem. Go outside the family. What if grandma wants to see photos? How do we yeah. get grandma to see photos? Well, if you can get grandma to get an iOS device, you can do a shared photo stream. She gets a notification on her phone. She just taps it. She sees the pictures like that. That's pretty much as close to ideal as you can get. But the photo streams are these other individual things. Like I have to make a photo stream and I can only make it here and then I can see it in iPhoto and then I have to get the photos into the photo stream and only the ones taken with that advice device go into the photo stream, but other people can put things into the photo stream. Oh, just it's too yeah, complicated. No. And, and it really took a lot of training for my family, you know, to kind of get them there. It's it's not something people are just going to instinctively start doing. Hey, I, we we really are going to talk about the work John gets done with his computer. <laughs> but uh, before we do, I wanted to talk about our sponsor, Pixelmator, and we're really happy to have Pixelmator back to the show in 2015, and and we're celebrating because Pixelmator uh, won the award for best of App Store in 2014. Pixelmator for iPad is a really powerful image editor. In fact, I, I just can't get over that they can pull this off on an iPad. It, it gives you everything you need to create and edit and enhance your images, and it lets you work seamlessly between the Mac and the iPad. And it'll even work effortlessly with people who use Adobe Photoshop. Pixelmator takes advantage of the latest iOS technologies, so you've got these speedy and powerful tools that let you touch up and enhance images and draw or paint, or you can even apply effects or create advanced composite. Amazingly simple. Uh, once your images are ready, you share them to celebrate your work with the whole world. I, I've really found that Pixelmator on the iPad has been a real eye-opener for me because um, we take all these pictures like we were just talking about, I guess, apropos, and my my wife and I uh, sit on the couch together a lot of times because, you know, our kids are teenagers and they don't want to talk to us. So we look at the pictures and and my wife is digging Pixelmator for iPad and she never could get into it on the Mac. But just the touch interface seems to be working for her. And I found that actually with several of our family members where they're, they're using Pixelmator on the iPad. So this is something you're going to want to check out. It's got uh, templates built right in. It's got retouching tools. You can correct wrinkles, repair scratches, get rid of those zits, whatever it is. Uh, you can make the flaws vanish from your photos, and you can rearrange objects in a composition. Uh, you can combine different tools to get different effects for uh, different ways to refine your images. And it's got, like, all these images loaded in. You can open and save images using PSD, JPEG, PNG, PDF, and many other popular formats. And it supports iCloud and sharing. So you're going to be able to get them right between the the Mac and the iOS device, no problem. And it was built exclusively for iPad. In fact, Pixelmator got featured at the Apple event. And that's kind of cool when you see one of your sponsors up on the stage at an Apple event. Uh, these guys really sweated the details. It takes full advantage of iOS 8 and the 64-bit architecture. Um, it, and it's very reasonable. You can go and get into it on the iPad for just $9.99. And uh, it's not much more to get it on the Mac as well. In an age where uh, these applications can cost a lot of money or subscriptions, Pixelmator's got you covered. Go check it out and let them know you heard about it from us. So, John, one of the things we were talking about at the beginning of the show is you always seem to be on top of your email. Um, I know we've exchanged a couple of emails just just trying to get the show scheduled and boom, within a few minutes or you know, certainly the same day, we always get a, got a prompt response from you. And you probably get a ton of email between, uh, you know, especially ATP. In fact, that's a new change since uh, your last sh uh, show you did with us, Hypercritical ended and, and ATP began. Um, but how do you stay on top of it all? 
Yeah, so the secret is that I'm not on top of it all, uh, and there are different classes of email. Email from people that I know, email from people that I like, email from people that I'm going to engage with in any way. A huge amount of email comes and receives no reply. I do read all my email, but that's it. Like, that is the only sort of promise I make to myself is that I will read all my email. I'm not including email lists, which I just skim because I do subscribe to a lot of email lists. David, I think he said he liked us. Did you hear that? I think all I heard is we're in one of those categories oh, okay. that he replies. Well, yeah, because here, here's the thing. Like, so for for podcast stuff, like I get a lot of requests to be on podcasts. So we had a lot of requests to do, uh, you know, freelance writing and all sorts of stuff like that. If it's remotely professional, uh, for the most part, people will get at the very least a courtesy reply that just says I'm not interested or whatever. Uh, but sometimes not even that. All right, because I have to, you know, I have to prioritize. I have to triage. It's like. Is this something I'm going to do? Am I going to be on this podcast? If I am, if I don't deal with it, uh, and usually dealing with it doesn't take long. If I don't deal with it, it's going to get lost in the, the the avalanche of email. So I should deal with it right away. Um, and that is, you know, I, I do have a system of filing to track things that I know I want to be updated on later. Like when when I saw all those uh, like inbox for Gmail and what was that what, mailbox or I don't know all sorts of things that let you essentially snooze an email so it reappears as if it's new again at a later date. Right. Those really appeal to me because that's essentially how I work. But every time I've tried one of those, I've, I don't know, maybe I'm just stuck in my ways. Like I, I manually do that same system myself kind of. Um, and I just haven't been able to get into one of the other ones. I guess I'm probably just stuck in my ways with all my huge number of email filters and labels and everything, but it's all about prioritization. So if it's something I'm going to do, if it's something related to a podcast that I'm either do regularly or that I'm going to be a guest on or, or a writing assignment that I've already accepted that I'm going to be doing, which rarely happens these days or anything like that, I just, you know, I want to be on top of it. And and I'm from New York, so I want to be on time and on top of things and, you know, give people deadlines that I'm either going to meet or say I'm, I am not going to meet them. Like, it just that's just the type of person that I am. But that's only for the things I'm actually committed to doing. There's tons of stuff that I'm not going to do that I'm not going to respond to at all. And those people think I'm terrible at emails. They'd be like, hey, I emailed this guy, you know, five times over the last three years asking about X and never got a single reply. It's like, yeah, because I just, I can't. It's the only way I can deal with things is to fairly ruthlessly triage. Yeah, and giving yourself permission not to answer email is, um, boy, that's that's so powerful. That's always been my default. Like, I never, I don't understand how people get into the place. Because, you know, I've been on the internet since, uh, not, not, I'm going to say since the beginning, but, you know, sort of since the, the point where the mass market got onto the, the internet, you know, yeah. 2,400 bought modems, right? Around that time, right? And, yeah. and, and email was just, I don't know, it never, I never felt like I needed to, re- to reply to every email. Certainly not after I started getting a lot of email because, even when I got a little email, it's like, if I don't know you and you're just, it's like, it's like a cold call at home. Like if someone calls you, you didn't ask them to call you and they call you and they, they just, it's like someone calling you on the phone and asking you a question. Like you don't, I don't owe them anything. I don't even know who you are or what you're asking about. It's like, I, I don't owe you any of my time. I didn't ask for this email to come. It is totally unsolicited. It just lands in my inbox. I feel free to ignore it. Like I don't, you know, telephone calls at this point, it's the same way. Like I don't even answer the phone if it's not a number I recognize. Well, that that solves the problem. I yeah. like that. I, mean, I like you do have relating to read it to a email, cold call. You do have to read it, though, because yeah. you won't know. You'll you'll never yeah. get any new opportunities or interesting things or whatever. So I do read my email, all the email that I get. And like I said, the only exception is mailing lists where it's not specifically to me. Then I'll just skim those. 
Yeah. Now you you mentioned you've set up kind of your own manual snooze function and, and filter functions. I'm I'm surprised that you don't use a service to do that. So have you just set up a series of folders and as stuff comes in, you throw it in the folders and then you go back in the or I guess you use Gmail so tags, but you throw it in there and you and you go back in and later and and sort through it again. Or is that to me that would be like kind of processing through things twice? How how does that work? So there are two two main techniques, and both all of these are are terrible compared to the apps that are de- dedicated to it which always makes me think like what are you doing why don't you just use one of those apps well, they, they never got them to stick so maybe I, I keep trying them maybe I'll, I'll eventually go go back and get something to work but anyway the first one is i leave it as unread or if i read it i remark it as unread right mm-hmm. because that is my system for the, the most frequent action i do in gmail is select everything and mark it as read which sounds like you said you were reading all your email. Like I said, the vast majority of the email I get is for, for uh, mailing lists and stuff. So after I read the messages that are actually, you know, directly to me, but not to a list, what I'm left with are the messages that are mass emails. And then usually I'll just skim the subject lines and the summaries to see if I'm interested at all in that ongoing thread. And usually I'm not. Select all on read. Mark is read. I do this all with the keyboard. Um, actually, I don't even know what the keys are. It's, that's, I was going to describe what it is, but it's one of those things where... My fingers it's know what the keys memory. are, yeah. but I don't. I don't actually know what the letters are. I think it's like U minus. I customized the key bindings way back in the beginning. Um, but if there's something that I know I need to get to that I can't get to now, I mark it as unread, and I will. You know, I won't miss the unread thing. Like I basically want my my inbox count. You know, it should say zero unread all the time. And if it doesn't say zero unread, that means I have something to do. And I will not let that go. Like, I won't I won't forget about that. I won't scroll off the end. If it says two unread, I know there's two things I have to do. So that's one technique. It's a crappy technique. No one should do this. Do not be like me. Use, use in a Gmail inbox or one of those mailbox type apps or something like that. Second one is I do have a series of labels uh, with cues for things that I need to do sort of this week, this month, sometime in the near future or whatever. And those cues are that I, I work those cues. They're labels. I'll just label it that way. And... If I have no unread, I will go into, you know, the most urgent queue that's supposed to happen this week. And like those queues are mostly empty, except for the sort of I I have a one sort of catch all to do queue, which is like things that I really think I should address in some way. But there's no implied time scale at all. And I still go back. In fact, I just did it earlier today. went back through the to do time scale and it's like not relevant anymore, not relevant, did something that makes that irrelevant, not going to do that. And, you know, it's pretty easy to clear that that stuff out. Um, All those queues I try to keep very short, less than a screenful. Um, and that's basically it. Wow. So are you using, it sounds like you're not using any kind of task management. You're just doing it all with an email. Yeah, no, I don't have any, I don't have a task management type of thing. Like I, I don't know. I guess I kind of have, uh, no, your Jimbo doesn't really feel like nothing like OmniFocus, no getting things done type of thing. Like really, I, if, if the amount of stuff I had to do sort of exceeded my working set that I can keep with an email in my head, I would have to use something like that. But thus far, mm-hmm. through triaging and everything, I've managed to keep it to. And I think basically like, I'm at the limit of what I can actually do time-wise. So I think I'm probably good with this system because if I did start getting more things that I had to keep track of, um, I wouldn't be able to... Like, the, to-do list wouldn't be the problem. Like It would just be that it's not enough time in the day. Like This, this right. is just some uh, system I use at home and at work to manage a regular full-time job job plus all my freelance stuff plus all my podcasting and that's all i can do and and family stuff i you know so i'm a big fan of yours i love all the stuff you produce and but you know something is a mystery i think to all of us on the internet is you know exactly what do you do during the day i know you're a programmer and i mean can you talk about that i don't want to get you in trouble but 
I mean, what kinds of workflows do you use to get through your day job? So in the day job, I'm doing, you know, web development, server-side web development stuff. Um, and day job, first, I have obviously a separate email account for work uh, yeah. that, is, that is only at work because I have security-sensitive stuff. So it's not like I, I don't even have that email at home. Everything I do if I work from home is through a VPN. So my work email is in one place. It's on the Exchange server. And then I have to deal with that. Um, and I use Outlook for that. So it's like an entirely separate bin of things. Uh, at work, we have our own sort of custom-built task systems sort of like a combination of a bug tracker project management ticketing system type thing um most of the work that i do at work is in units of those tasks and those tasks have their own web application to track them in terms of due dates and work progressing on them and grouping them and stuff like that so that takes care of a lot of the work task management i have a work calendar which shows you know what meetings i'm going to go to when projects are due all stuff like that my work, again, my work calendar totally separate from my home calendar. Don't they don't mix at all? Um, that's that's basically uh, it, and that takes care of my work stuff. And I only deal with my work stuff when I'm at work. Uh, if we didn't have the sort of bug tracking task management system type thing, I'd probably have to come up with something on my own. And in the past, when I've done that, it's been like a series of silly text files. Um, I don't know. I that's that's been sufficient for me to work, but it, definitely the biggest thing is keeping work separate from home so they don't mix together at all, and so they can be managed in, in separate bins and at separate times. Like I'm not, I'm not context switching between my real job and the other stuff. It's sort of one thing at a time. Yeah, and and that's the nice thing is you've got the software, the tools at work to manage that, so you can just kind of dive into the weeds. Is what I'm hearing at least. Yeah, I mean, like, the tools are not great. I'm not going to lie. Like, they're internally built tools. They're not third-party software. Uh, and what, from what I've seen, the third-party stuff isn't that great either. The, the internal tools are kind of old and creaky, but they do. They are tailored to our specific business and the way that our company does things, which may or may not be the best way they do things. But it's like, you know, it's like any kind of bureaucracy. It just becomes the unit of work in the company is these things, and they're managed and tracked by, by the people who do the work and the people who manage the work alike. And so you just work within the system. You know, it could be worse. And in addition to being your writing platform, is BBEdit BB still your primary platform for web development? Yep, that's what I'm doing all day is I'm sitting there with terminal windows and BBEdit. That's, you know, I... So how many years has BBEdit been, like, the focus of your, your life in terms I'm, of... Since the beginning, <laughs> yeah, like it's the first. It's the first. I didn't know what a text editor was before I used BBEdit. I mean, I, I knew what like you know teach text and simple text were, but those weren't text editors. Those had fonts. You know, it was like you could yeah. change the font style and everything. A text editor just for doing source code because I, I didn't really do programming until I went to college. So, and, and in college, I, I learned Emacs, uh, but I had already known about BBEdit. So BBEdit was my first text editor, and Emacs, you know, and VI and all that stuff were my second and third, and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I've always, I've been using, I've just been using BB edit too long. I can't, I can't switch away now Although I do occasionally use Emacs and VI at work, you know, I, for, for stuff that you can't, that I can't use BB edit on like when I'm telling it into some machine that's far away from my Mac. It's pretty amazing though. When you think about it, it's a tool that you started using in college and still every day you pay for your shoes with the same tool. Yeah. Well, no, I think I started using it before college, like whenever BB edit 2.2.5 or whatever came out, like, I don't know what, 1992 one, I don't know, but yeah, well, a long time. And I've, as I've said, I think there was some BB edit testimonial on the site or something like everything I've ever done in my sort of adult like, like, you know, whether it be, you know, writing OS 10 reviews, writing programs, like everything I've done, I've done in BB edit. 
We're, we're going to have to do a show on BB Edit. It, there's just so much power there, David. Yeah. I bet we could even get rich here. I bet yeah. he would talk about to it. To promote his own product? No. Yeah, I, I think he'd probably agree. Yeah. yeah. And there's just so many great users out there. In fact, uh, Mac Power Users, listeners, if you're doing something amazing with BB Edit, let us know. We're going to start putting that show into the into the hopper. Right. Um, the uh, So you, you blew up the internet a few weeks ago, John. And an I, you guys don't call it After Dark. What do you call the after show, I guess, on ATP, where you started talking about the fact that you keep a lot of windows open and everybody went crazy. After show, I guess, is what we call it. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's a weird, the format of ATP evolved organically and it makes no sense. Try not to think about it too hard. After the song. Yep. Okay. So you guys just record and that just happened to be the place where it, it landed. But everybody went crazy because John has a lot of windows open in his browsers. Well, my two co-hosts went crazy, I think. And I I think the rest of the internet was surprised at exactly how crazy they went because like what do you have a computer for if not to use it? And it's not crazy for me to have a lot of windows open. I mean, I'm looking at my screen right now and I have not only a lot of windows open, but a lot of windows visible. And I, the, the idea of, of having, you know, a Mac with the type of power and memory and CPU and everything connected to the internet that we have today, and then forcing yourself to keep like, you know, enough five or fewer windows open that's just crazy to me like if you guys all both look at your screens right now how many windows can you actually see Three. any part of i've got uh six apps open and i've got about 10 tabs because i'm recording a podcast but i i don't usually have as many as you do yeah i, I mean it's the, I, that's what windows are for like they're they're for holding stuff and I don't get rid of them until I'm done with what they're going to do, you know? So that that's something, a misunderstanding of the, that little bit of ATP. Like at the time, I think I said I had like 19 Safari windows open with, with tabs in them and like six or 12, uh, Google, uh, Google windows, uh, Chrome windows open. That's because I was in the middle of a podcast and I tend to have task based windows. Like, uh, earlier today I was researching, uh, headsets for gaming for the PlayStation four cause I wanted to buy one. And I would have a window. First, my window was the Googling window, like Google, you know, PS4 headset reviews. And then spawn off the tabs in that window with the search results until I found some good search results. And then so that's my first window of research. The next window is this headphone looks like it's getting some good reviews. Let me find out what I can about the headphone. New window for just reviews of that headphone. Review of that headroom on Tech Radar. Review of that headphone. A YouTube review of it, a review on like a sort of a Metacritic tech collection review thing. Like, so that's just for that headphone. The Amazon page for that headphone, different prices for it. Second headphone, third headphone. I've already got like five windows open with multiple tabs in them. And this is just for one, just for that one task. This is not counting the windows that are always open. Like, I always have my Gmail window open. I always have my calendar, you know, like that's just the way I use computers. Right now, I only have a handful of windows open in, in Chrome. I have four Chrome windows, two of which are minimized. And in Safari, I have three Safari windows open because I'm not doing anything right now except for just doing a podcast. And this podcast didn't have a lot of show notes and research for me to do ahead of time. I just show up and talk. Um, so it's not like the windows stay there forever. They're task-based. I use them. And when I eventually ordered a headset uh, today, all the windows related to headset research, I closed. All right. Now I got to ask, which one did you order? Oh God, the research was difficult. I was really hoping the wire cutter would have a, a story yeah. on best gaming headset. They didn't. So I had to try to do the research myself. I ended up getting, uh, what is it called? Turtle Bay, I think. That's the 
Yeah, that's I'm familiar with that brand. Yeah, and like the the PX4 Turtle Bay thing. I don't know if I'm going to like it. I don't like the fact that it has a breakout box, but at least I know what I'm getting into at this point. I didn't have research to know this thing has a breakout box. Uh, it, the bass is a little bit heavy. Uh, you have to change your audio output to optical before it will send audio to it. So it's kind of annoying to switch back and forth. Um, you know. I'll see. If I don't like it, I can return it. One of the things I like about um, having a lot of windows open is the Mac makes it really easy right now. Even, I don't know if you're using a trackpad or a mouse, but the app expose on a trackpad, if you just take four fingers and swipe down, I use that gesture all day long. And then there's the mission controls, the opposite direction. If you swipe up, it'll show you your spaces and all the different windows you've got open. So once you get, I, I found that once I kind of got good at just making that second nature, jumping between these windows is, is not a problem. Yeah, I never got into that, mostly because my habits were sort of burned in before that feature existed. Uh, and secondarily, because I find it, uh, you know, over the years have they changed how Expose has worked and everything. It's, it's less spatially stable than my own manually arranged windows. And I sort of have regions of the screen that I dedicate for certain things, uh, for web browsers, for, I know, for Skype, you know, for my terminal windows, for my IRC windows, for my my little Twitter client window. Um, and I, I could do with the bigger screen to make these things sort of less crowded, but those regions are known to me and I can get to them in one or two clicks uh, without initiating anything. Uh, with Expose and stuff, I've seen people who, are, who enjoy using it that way, but I still feel like it's... Uh, Activate, uh, recognize the windows by like, you know, color or shape or whatever, and then they'll sort of find them and click on them. So there's a little bit more conscious activity because you have to sort of look at what expose throws in you. And if you're bouncing back and forth and things don't change from, from, you know, from, uh, activation to activation, it's a little bit better. But if you just come up to a Mac cold and activate it, you don't know where the groups of windows are going to be because it sort of tries to sort of arrange them the way it thinks they fit together, you know, yeah. and that arrangement changes based on what's open in each thing. So it's not really as stable. And so there's still that phase where you have to look at these sort of the finished expose screen where your things are arranged in groups and find the group you're interested in. And that that's too much thinking for me. I the, want the it one, to be more automatic. The one part I didn't understand about your setup though is, so you told me like, or you said that you have like a section of the screen where you generally keep like chat versus another section where you keep browsers. How do you get those, those apps in those locations? Is it just from the apps remembering where they were last time? Or do you have to, it seems like it would be fiddly that you'd have to be moving things around to get them in the right place. So it's, I always try to think of a good analogy and the one I come up with is not great because although it's familiar to me, it's not, it's not as familiar to other people. So uh, as a, as a kid, I, took art lessons for many, many years and, uh, learned, you know, like fine art stuff, you know, uh, pens and pencils and pastels and different kinds of paint or whatever. And so the, the later years of my sort of, uh, childhood art career were spent learning to learning to paint to different kinds of paint. And what you do when you're painting something is you have you know, your palette and your canvas and your, you know, your various liquids that you're going to dip your brushes into and your brushes. Um, and it's kind of like asking, how do you decide where to put everything? How do you decide where to put the canvas? How do you decide where to put the colors on your palette? How do you decide where to put your brushes? And it's like, you just do it. And things are where you put them. And it's like, whatever works for you. And yeah, you sort of hone your thing. You learn how you're going to arrange your colors. Maybe you don't put this in the color next to that color. When you're going to do this type of thing with lots of liquid, put it over here so you have room to smudge it out and everything like that. And do you, where do you want your little bottles of, uh, you know, turpentine or water or whatever, depending on what paint you're using? You just figure out what works for you, and 
and then it just it becomes automatic it's not like you're sitting there carefully arranging things okay i want this over here i want that over there it's just like it's just where you put your tools when you're when you're doing a particular task. It's a bad example because most people don't paint, so they have no idea what the heck it's like yeah. to paint. But this but is the one that occurs to me. I'm trying to maybe it, kitchen stuff is kind of similar. I'm not sure, but it's not. It's you know, it's just it's just like dealing th- with things in the physical world where you just sort of arrange them to suit yourself. And once you've done a task repeatedly, whether it's preparing dinner or painting a painting or whatever, you sort of get a feel for like, all right, when I'm preparing dinner, maybe that's a better one. Like, this is where I always put the cutting board when I chop vegetables. This is where I put the refuse when I'm done with the parts that I cut off. This is where I put the pot. You just, if you've made the meal 500 times, you get a system for it. And it's not like you spend time carefully adjusting where the cutting board is. It's like it just happens. Okay. Well, that makes more sense because the the way I heard you, it, it sounded to me like, okay, I always have this window and this spot every time. And I, I, I just pictured you there meticulously, like resizing and dragging and pulling. And to me, that that's where I would go crazy. Well, so good, well-behaved Mac applications and the grand tradition of Mac applications behave in the ways that I want. And that if you put a window in a particular location, it stays there. And I tend to gravitate towards programs that still work that way. A great example is uh, ADM, uh, yeah. the instant message client which remembers window positions like so when i have a a, you know an im window with my wife uh and i close that window if she sends me another im that window appears in the exact same place and size as it was before Uh, i mentioned that on the show compare that to messages where you can break out messages into separate windows but in general they want you to do it within a single window and the the number of times i accidentally typed the wrong thing to the wrong person in the messages application is non-zero let's say and that's the terrible thing you don't want that to happen right uh, it never happens in ADM. It's not because I know specifically where my wife's window is. If I think about it, like, oh, where's my wife's IM window? It's just that when you converse with her, even if you close the window when you're done conversing and two seconds later, she's got something else to say, it's right back where it was. And so I don't have to remember, like, let me visualize on my screen. The IM window for my wife is here. The IM window for this coworker is there. The IM window for my boss is there. It just matters that it's consistently in the same spot and the same size. Even if I have to move them and rearrange them, especially for work stuff, if I'm IMing with somebody, I need to do something in another window and I move it. As long as it's always consistently there, the conversation, it just it naturally flows where you know, you go back to that window or if you close it and it reappears. I feel like that position is this conversation with this person, right? Yeah, uh, it's a spatial memory. Right. And it's not something that I'm, you know, I don't care where the IM window for my wife is on the screen. Well, I kind of care. I wouldn't be in the upper left. It's probably somewhere, somewhere in the right half of the screen and probably the lower part of the screen. So there may be a quadrant that I kind of gravitate towards my wife's window. But within the bounds of that, I just care that it's consistent. Right. I just care that it's always in the same place. And same thing with a colloquy, my IRC client. Once you arrange a window for a particular IRC channel and you put it there, every time you join that channel, the window comes back in the exact same spot and the exact same size. And you're only in a handful of channels, and eventually you just come to arrangement. It's like, well, that's that's where that channel is on my screen, and it's never going to move. Even if I close that window, I rejoin, the window will come back in that exact same spot. The interesting takeaway I took from that whole thing, because it was like kind of a big deal, and you guys even, I think, came back to it on a later podcast, is that it's funny how everybody has some way they do this stuff, and they're just, they can't fathom that people do it differently. I can I can understand why people try to do the, like, I just want to have one pure, beautiful window centered on my screen and my beautiful desktop background visible behind it. Like, it's kind of a an aesthetic type of thing. Um, and the thing is, I'm like that way in the real world in that uh, if you look at my desk at work, people always comment that I have, like, five things on my desk. I have a computer, a monitor, a cup, a picture of my family, and boxes of tissues. 
That's the only things that are ever on my desk. There is nothing else unless I'm eating lunch and I maybe have a sandwich there or something. There is nothing else on my desk. Whereas other people, look at their desk, they have far more than five things on them. There's tons of stuff. Actually, I don't even know if that count was five. But anyway, it's a small number of things on my desk and it never changes. Super neat, right? Some people keep their Macs that way. The reason why I'm not that way in the computer realm and I'm that way in the physical realm is the computer realm never gets dirty and you can infinitely, like, instantly and infinitely clean things up. And command option w will close all your windows if you close the window and reopen it close it and reopen it it doesn't wear out it doesn't it doesn't wear groove into your screen it doesn't get dirty it doesn't you know like you can make things perfectly clean how you can just hide others and it's like they're gone right you can't do that in real life if i had if i had the ability to manipulate real life the way we can on computer screens perhaps i would behave differently but it's like the real world i would like to be very neat and very orderly or whatever because it is there's no, you know, there's no magic to make things disappear and reappear. There's no magic to clean things perfectly. It's like you have to be neat and orderly because there is no other system. They're, they're physical objects, right? On the computer, you have the advantage that, you know, it's like it's like text, right? When you're editing text, the typewriter, when, you know, you have to do a whiteout strip or, or, you know, or try to do correction fluid and stuff like that. And it's just gross. Or with pencil, you have to erase and then you wear through the paper and the eraser nubs get all over there. It's just disgusting, right? In the computer, you can delete as many times as you want. It never gets dirty. You can edit that text forever. No matter how many times you delete and retype, it's always perfect. That's the whole advantage of a computer. So I have no problem with having a bunch of stuff on the computer because I know when I'm done doing the headphone research, click, 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 click. All that stuff is gone perfectly like it was never there. There's not a mark left on my system from it. Just, you know, some entries in a history thing somewhere. I'm, I'm such a weirdo because I, I totally get what you're saying. And I often have many windows open, but at the same time, I'm not adverse to using the full screen mode, especially on the laptop. Um, so whatever works. Yeah, I like full screen. If I had to use like an 11 inch air, I would use full screen way more because I hate feeling cramped. And of course, I use full screen for video and stuff like that. But I don't think I ever put an app into full screen, at least not on a large monitor. Uh, yeah. you know, on laptops on a smaller monitor, I would do that just to get the extra space. Yeah. Well, we promised that we would get around at some point to talking about the iPhone. And I think we, we probably need to head in that direction. Before we do, though, I want to take a quick break and talk about our next sponsor for this episode. And that is our pals over at Squarespace. And I want to talk about the brand new Squarespace 7. And you can find more information about Squarespace 7 by going to squarespace.com slash 7. That's the number 7 spelled out S-E-V-E-N for more information. Uh, it is a completely redesigned Squarespace 7 interface. They've added a whole bunch of new features, including integration with Google Apps, a partner with Getty Images, so you can get significant discounts on images that you want to use on your Squarespace site brand new, gorgeous templates, and a new feature called cover pages. So if you have a, a single page that you want to feature on your site, they can help you out with that. Um, Squarespace features beautiful design that is simple and powerful. So if you want to get a site up and running fast, you can do that with Squarespace. You can import information from one of your old sites. You can customize any of their templates to make them unique and custom just for your particular use. You can use Squarespace sites for anything, whether you want a blog, whether you want a portfolio, whether you're setting up a site for a club, whether you're setting up a site for a podcast. Uh, you can do all of that with Squarespace. And if you ever need help, they have got great support, 24-7 live support via chat or via email. And the best of all is Squarespace is only eight bucks a month 
And if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain name. Uh, Squarespace has responsive design, which means your site will scale and look great on any size device, uh, whether you've got one of those uh, 27-inch uh, Retina iMacs or whether you've got an iPhone, it's just going to work. And every Squarespace site comes with a free online store called Squarespace Commerce. Uh, you know, I was just... Uh, managing a, a, a other site um, who shall not be named. And it got hacked recently for one of my clubs. And we were going back and forth as to what to do about it. Were we just going to nuke and pave it and restore it from a backup? We're um, we got to hire somebody to try to clean it up and salvage it from the hack. And I said, you know, I'm just one vote, but my vote is let's don't ever deal with this again. We really don't want to be web administrators. I'll set us up with Squarespace site. I'll even get up and running. I'll get our old content in there and, and we can go from there because there's a lot to be said about not having to be a web administrator and not having to handle any of the back end. Squarespace just takes care of it all. You get to deal with the content and do what you do best. So you can start with a free trial, no credit card required, and start building your website today. When you do to sign up to sign up for Squarespace, make sure that you use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for Mac Power users. So thank you, Squarespace, for your support of Mac Power users uh, and 5x5. Five five. So, uh, John, you got your iPhone. How do you like it? That's all right. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> yeah, I well, mean, hey. it's yeah. I I'm uh, I have mixed feelings about the screen size. Okay, uh, so you got the, you got the 6, right? Yes. Okay. It, it too big? I don't it's not well, I guess it's not the screen size. I guess it's the So my iPod Touch I took with me everywhere. I've had every iPod Touch they've ever made. Every right. time they revised it, I got the new one. Uh and the iPod Touch has grown too when the screen's got taller or whatever, but it's you know, it was always with me, walking around the house, sitting next to me while I watch TV uh, at work, um, frequently in pockets. And this thing in my pocket and carrying it around with me, it's it's bigger. My pockets didn't get any bigger. You know, the no, nothing else in my life got bigger, but the thing got a little bit bigger. And I, I'm totally used to it. It doesn't bother me. But every once in a while, I realize that I, I notice this thing more than I noticed my little iPod touch. I do like the bigger screen on the actual device. So maybe it's because of the weight and the thickness, because again, the iPod Touch was always thinner than the iPhone. It was always sort of like as thin as the next iPhone was going to be, so it felt kind of like living in the future with my super thin uh, iPod Touch, even with the case on it. Sometimes it was thinner than a, an iPhone without a case on it. Um, with this thing, with the bigger screen, I find myself kind of sort of using it like a little miniature iPad sometimes, where I'll sit on my bed where I would normally... Uh, read something on my iPad and prop up my iPhone and, and read stuff on it. I'm like, it's not that, you know, I have a full-size iPad. It's not that close to the thing, but it's just big enough that I feel more comfortable, you know, looking at some things on it than I wouldn't otherwise. But the size and the weight, it feels like a, like a downgrade in terms of the portability, even as it's an upgrade in terms of how much I can see. And of course, the, the speed is phenomenal compared to my iPod Touch, so that's nice. Yeah, it's like running circles around the old one. Yeah. Uh, the uh, It's funny, because I have like all these old jeans I wear around and they've all got in the left pocket an iPhone five shaped shadow or whatever you call it. Uh, just cause I keep the phone in the same pocket all the time and I wear the jeans often. And you can see now when I put the iPhone six in, it's just, it's just bigger. And, you know, I was telling a friend that the phone is bigger, which means it's the screen is bigger, but it's, it's less convenient. And for every person, there is a size at which that, that, that additional screen size 
is outweighed by the inconvenience of the of the size of the phone. I mean, for me, I, I actually tried a plus for a week and took it back. It was just too big for me. So I had hit that wall. I guess some people could have maybe a phone the size of an iPod, iPad mini and they'd be happy with it. I don't know. But I, I'm actually okay with the six. I, I think if they, you know, because everybody talks about, well, maybe next year they'll come back with the, the 5S size as a smaller one. I don't think I would go down. I like the, the little bigger size and I don't mind the slightly larger size in my pocket. But it's kind of, it's just everybody's got their own position on it. Yeah, yeah I think I could go a little bit th- I go a little bit thinner, maybe. Like I think that would solve a lot of it for the weight, you know. If they if it was just a little bit thinner and lighter, but I'd have to try it to see. We'll never know if Apple would do that. No, thinner and lighter, no, <laughs> never. But yeah, that, that may make a difference too. But I I like the bigger screen. I think maybe it's part of the fact that I have forty six year old eyes, and it's it's easier to read the text now because I actually have to wear glasses sometimes with the really tiny text. Um, but. I, I've been pretty happy with it, but, but for you now, so you've never, you always had the iPod touch, so you've never had the, the LTE connection. So you've never had kind of the wireless connection when you're not in your home Wi-Fi. Um, so how has that changed your usage at all? A little bit. I mean, my wife has had an iPhone 5S since that was introduced and I occasionally would mooch off her when we were out and we were waiting in a line somewhere. Uh, she would, you know, she would use her phone to check her email and then she would hand me her phone and I would, you know, check my Twitter or whatever using her phone. And it wasn't a big deal. Like I, I, I didn't, when I was by myself, I didn't feel that I was missing it. The bottom line and the reason I get an iPhone is 99% of the time I'm near Wi-Fi. I'm either at my house where I've got Wi-Fi or I'm at work where I've got Wi-Fi or I'm driving from one of those locations. At which point I don't, I don't need Wi-Fi and I, yeah. you know, I had a regular cell phone that the biggest upgrades for getting an iPhone has been for me, car integration, uh, Bluetooth car integration, even though the iPod touch has Bluetooth, the, the chances of it integrating with the car are not as high as the, the phone integration and, and you know, the phone integration with the car. So when I'm driving in the car, listening to podcasts and my wife calls, I can press a button on the steering wheel, pause, the podcast pauses. I can have a conversation with her in the car and then hang up and my podcast resumes and that was like okay this is a significant upgrade from my previous system of having an ipod touch plugged into the auxiliary input that i would have to pause and pick up my other cell phone sitting in like yeah it's this is way better than that so that i think is the biggest place i've seen and none of that has to do with lte i guess except for the, the the phone call itself it's not like you know i'm streaming the podcast over the internet or anything but yeah i find myself yeah now now that i have my own phone with me all the time wherever i go when i'm waiting in line or waiting for you know, someone to show up or whatever. I can, I can read three tweets. You've joined the rest of us. I you know, I find it in the car. It's very useful for navigation because I mean, the navigation systems in cars have never been very good. And uh, at least in my experience and, and I've got a nice little mount and you hold down the Siri button and say, get directions home wherever I'm at in the world. And it gets me home. Yeah. I haven't quite gotten to that point yet. We do use it for navigation occasionally, but we have a super old Garmin dedicated GPS that we bought used from a friend, uh, which is terrible. It's not good. The maps haven't been updated since 2006, but we still use that when we actually need navigation. Most of the time we have our, now we both have our phones for backup and occasionally we will, we will fire the Garmin and, <laughs> and, and go switch to the, the iPhone thing. And whether it's Google maps or Apple maps or whatever, I, I haven't gotten to the point now where I've got a mount for it or anything like that because really I'm just going from work to home to school to, you know, kids' activities, and I sort of know where all those places are. We don't travel that much. But, uh, yeah, I could see that being an advantage, although I still have this feeling like 
that I trust the dedicated one more than my phone. Like that it's, that it's a device just for doing this, that nothing's going to interfere with it. And that, I don't know, it's, it's probably irrational. I'll probably get over it. Well, it is, it, it can be distracting. Like if you're driving down the road and you're coming up on a turn and somebody calls on the phone, it, it actually makes it hard to figure out where yeah, you're going. There's a lot of, because like the same thing with the music, like I will listen to music off of my iPods. In fact, I have one iPod actually dedicated. One of my old iPod touches is in my car permanently. It's just always connected via USB to the thing. It's got all my whole music library on it. Um, if you have the music listening uh, and directions and phone calls all on a single device and trying to, to juggle those things together. What, what, what are you going to show on the screen? Your current directions or the current playing song? And it's like, it's some, some ways it's nice to have these functionalities spread out, you know? So my iPod integration, mother, my car shows me on my car screen, the current playing track and artists and stuff like that. And the GPS is its own separate screen because it's a dedicated thing. And then the phone is just sitting in my pocket. Then the Bluetooth is connected to the, you know, I don't know. I, it's we're moving towards something here. It's getting better. It's still kind of a mess, though. Oh, yeah. When they first started it, the navigation, one of the big problems was at nighttime, it didn't have a, a nighttime display. So it, you had this massively bright, you know, pixel blasting in your face while you're trying to drive at night and it's ruining your night vision. And it was terrible. But they, they you know, they keep they fix that and they keep getting better at it. And it does a better job of prioritizing what's important while you're driving down the road. I see where it this is going although you know apple's also got their own plays and trying to get into your dashboard and whether or not that's successful ultimately or not um the phone is is a nice solution and, and like if you were driving a lot i could see why someone would want the plus just for the navigation because it's a bigger screen but it, it's um it's very useful and, and listening to your your story i mean you work at the same place every day in my job i actually travel a lot so um, the phone to me was a, a big deal from the very beginning. But if I had a job where I went to the same place every day and I had the same Wi-Fi, I don't think it would be as big of a deal. Yeah, even the kids' activities, like when I have my iPod Touch, a surprising number of the places that my kids have activities have Wi-Fi, have free Wi-Fi. That, you know, where yeah. when they know parents are going to be sitting there, you know, it's not worth driving home and coming back because it's a 45-minute activity and it's 15 minutes from home, right? Yeah. So you just sit there and wait for your kid to be done whatever it is they're doing. And they have Wi-Fi. And so I, I, you know, a few extra places I can read Twitter that I couldn't before. But, you know, even when I when I didn't have uh, cell access, I had Instapaper or, you know, I would be listening to a podcast, none of which requires that network access yeah. while I'm just sitting around waiting for my kids activities. So what kind of apps are you putting on your phone? I don't think I put many new things on there. What did I put on that's new? I mean, I have been evolving. I wasn't inst in, into Instagram until fairly recently. Maybe it's because, like, now my device actually has a decent camera because the iPod Touch has always got a crappy camera on them. And so now the 6 has a decent camera. So I've gotten instant Instagram. Instagram was always on my phone I just or on my iPod Touch. I was just never into it. But now it's on the home screen. Um, I don't think anything else, like... Because, again, there's nothing specifically phone-related that uh everything was just you know well, this works with an internet connection and if you have wi-fi it works just as well so i don't think my application usage has changed much yeah i think was it you're a twitterific user right yep yeah and um so that one uh i'm sure you're using the um what about the extra row did that uh, did that throw you yeah <laughs> no i my home screen is kind of a mess like because i couldn't i had an arrangement that i had been using basically since the original ipod touch that was you know released around the same time as the iphone and that arrangement changed when i got the extra row for the tall screen 
iPod touch, but not that much because the tall screen is still, everything was still within reach for my hands. The six though, now all of a sudden there, there are regions of the screen that are just no go that I'm not going to put anything important in there because it's just too darn far away. And so now I have, now I have to change everything because like Safari used to be my top left. That was like my most important, most used app, top left Safari. So top left, I can, but it's like a hand shimmy. I don't want to put anything that I'm frequently putting there. So I had to shove everything down to the lower right because I hold my phone in my right hand, shove everything down to the lower right, and then find sort of lesser used apps to fill in the top and left side. And it's, it's a kind of a mess. You put folders on your home screen or you just, no, just no, apps, no folders, just apps. Yeah. Have there been any negatives with getting the iPhone? I mean, do you feel like maybe when you just had the iPod touch and you couldn't use the phone in the car, or you couldn't use the phone or the you know, certain features when you, when you didn't have Wi-Fi? that, you know, maybe you were kind of the last civilized person left out there amongst a, a world of, of iPhone and smartphone zombies? I'm still the last civilized person because like okay. the, the, whole, the whole thing of I, this, this meme about, you know, a bunch of people go to dinner and they're all sitting there at their phones. If I go out to dinner, I never take out my phone. I never took it out when I didn't have a smartphone and never take it out when I have a smartphone. Like, it's not something that I do. Like, I don't, I don't find myself having to prevent myself from using the phone you know it's just not it's it's no more a problem like the ipod touch like my, my family would tell you when i'm sitting on the couch at home i'd be looking at the ipod touch and that that was a problem just as much as it is with the phone but when i'm out somewhere specifically being out to dinner i would not occur to me in a, in a lull in conversation to take out my smartphone and read twitter when i'm there with a bunch of other people and it still does not occur to me to do that and i don't do it yeah, I don't know if that's a. I see it with um, my. I have a brother who's just five years younger, six years younger than me, and and he does it. I mean, at the dinner table, we have Sunday night dinners still with the family, and you know, the first thing I do when I I walk into my mother's house is you know we kind of have a bowl by the door. I, I drop my keys and I drop my phone in it, um, and you know we'll be sitting at the dinner table and out comes the phone. I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? What could you possibly be doing that's so important? I was at the uh, gym on Sunday taking a spin class, and this this girl was on her phone the entire time, and then practically fell down the stairs because she she had to text or or whatever as she was trying to walk down the stairs. And I was just like, this this is absolutely ridiculous. These I have to confess today. that that I am worse about it at home because like yeah. forget about the phone iPod touch it's always been the same thing it's always with me I'm always going around the house with it whether I have it in my pocket but it's like here's two two main things that my iPod touch is for when I'm doing dishes I'm probably listening to podcasts so right. ki- kitchen cleanup headphones are probably in uh, and I was until a couple of years ago bringing the iPod touch with me to the table when I was eating you know if I'm eating breakfast or something or you know, even dinner and have the iPod touch out there and just flick through Twitter, Twitter while I'm eating dinner. My wife uh, put a stop to that a couple of years ago. <laughs> and now, now the, the, uh, the iOS devices do not come. Although she has the iPhone 5S and occasionally that shows up at like a, a casual lunch, for instance. I don't say anything. But anyway, uh, yeah, the, it's easier with, you know, sort of people you're comfortable with or familiar with it to get into that. I feel maybe like the social pressure of being like if we go out to dinner, even I'm just out to dinner with my wife. It's not like we're going to each individually take out our phones and look at them when we're because it so rarely happens. But at home, you know, uh, at breakfast, for example, like I usually eat breakfast after the kids are on the bus and after my wife has left for work. So I read my, you know, my phone goes out in front of me just like my iPod touch does. And I catch up on Twitter before I get in the car and go to work. Yeah, huh? I, did, I I was out with friends, and I've got a, a a particular friend who's really bad about using his phone all the time. 
So uh, while we're eating, I said, hey, let's play a game. And everybody put their phones on the table face down. And whoever picks up their phone first has to buy for everybody. And everybody thought it was really funny. And we all did it. And nobody picked up their phone. I mean, nobody wanted to buy. And and at one point, one of the person's phones started ringing. And you could tell it was just driving her crazy that she couldn't pick it up. But it's kind of fun. I mean, I, I think you can get around it these days. And with my kids, I've, I've given them so much grief about it that we were at a restaurant recently and they all went off to the restroom and I was paying the check. And so I'm sitting at the table myself. I pull out my phone and I'm like, John, I'm going through Twitter or something. And they come back and they're like, you have your phone out in a restaurant. They were very upset with me. But <laughs> anyway, once um, everybody leaves you, I say all bets are off. Cause once all the, yeah. once everyone yeah. else once has left alone. you and you are alone at the table, then yeah. But as soon as the people come back, it has to go away. What, what about, I mean, you having any issues with battery life or anything? Are, are you generally happy? I mean, you have a, you used to have a podcast, you have a website called Hypercritical. So I'm just wondering what your thought, I mean, now you're using it every day. What are your thoughts? Well, compared to a multiple years old fifth gen iPod touch, the battery life is phenomenal because the battery, first of all, the battery life of those two devices yeah, is brand be. new. It's better. And second of all, that battery, you know, it's just been recharged every single day for years. So this is a brand spanking new battery. Batteries do age, there's no way around it. So I'm perfectly happy with it. In fact, this this long weekend, you know, uh, I think, yeah, I think I charged my phone up Friday. Maybe it was charged up Friday night as well. But Saturday, Sunday, and until earlier today, I didn't charge the phone. I went like three days without charging the phone. Wow. I'm just wandering around the house because I have... I have almost all the energy sucking things turned off. I don't let apps do stuff in the background. I don't have notifications turned on. I don't enable push. Uh, and I don't use it that much when I'm just at home. Like, cause I didn't go to work Friday. So I had, had off, uh, off today as well. So what did I do with it? I just read Twitter a little bit. I also read Twitter a little bit on my iPad. Uh, so yeah, battery life is not a problem for me. I'm just such a light user of the device that it doesn't become an issue. Well, you know, sounds like you're, uh, you're liking your new phone. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, I still have the issues about the thickness and the weight, and maybe the screen could be a little bit smaller. Same resolution, I could shrink it down a little bit, but uh, other than that, oh, and Touch ID I really love. There's another feature I was so jealous of because the iPod Touch doesn't have it. So much nicer. So yeah. nice. Have you tried to do Apple Pay or any of that stuff yet? I haven't. I have it. I, have, I entered a card into Apple Pay, but I just I just went to the supermarket today. In fact, I went twice to the supermarket today. And both times after I had paid it with my debit card, I had read the little text above the thing that said something about tapping your phone. I'm like, oh, I could have tried that, but it doesn't occur to me. And yeah. I feel it's a big deal to take out my debit card. Maybe I'll maybe I'll get into it eventually. I, I actually really like the rounded design of the six, the way the edges are, are more rounded than the prior versions. I, I find that I think it's more attractive and I like holding it better. So I'm really happy with the new phone. Yeah, I like that way. But I did not like the five design, the little sort of metal bathtub squared yeah. off edges it just i didn't find it visually interesting i didn't find it comfortable to hold i really love the 4 4s design aesthetically but i didn't like holding that one either this one with the curved edges it's much nicer i it the, my favorite phone after the six would probably be the first one i really like the curved edges on that one as well so it, it feels nice um i, I want to talk to you about also just some of your favorite little apps that you use because everybody wants to know what john syracuse uses uh but before we do i'm gonna do our last sponsor and this is a great read you guys are gonna love this because the omni group is a sponsor and they said dave we want you to keep it short we want you to tell everybody one thing 
the Omni Productivity Pack is coming in quarter one. So the Omni Group has made these great apps for the iPad over the years, and they're bringing it all to the iPhone. And that's going to happen in the first quarter. And they've been working their butts off on it, I know, because I talked to those guys. And uh, by the end of Q1, all the great stuff we like about Omni Focus and Omni Outliner and Omni Plan and Omni Graffle is going to be on your phone. So if you, especially if you've got that big six plus, you're going to be in great shape. And the, the Omni group just want to let everybody know that they like the Mac power users and we like them. So go check it out. Wow. So that bigger phone is allowing them to do fun new stuff. Yeah. Well, they, Ken Case talked about it when he was on the show and now they're making good on it. The Q1 is now. So I'm very curious to see what happens. It's going to be great. Awesome. That's all they have to say. That's all they have to say. They said that is all. Just make sure everybody knows we got you covered. All right. Well, you can find more information. I believe they had a blog post on this recently. Uh, go over to Omnigroup.com and, and check out their blog post. Thank you, Omni. And, al- and also, it's universal, so you're not going to have to buy them again. So if you Sweet. bought it on the iPad, you're in. So you're great. Great. So, John, what is up in your menu bar? In my menu bar on my Mac, you mean? Yeah. Uh, not much. Uh, what have I got here? Starting from the right, I've got these standard things. You've got Notification Center, Spotlight, the user switcher menu shown as an icon, not as a name. Uh, date and time, time machine, jump cut, Twitterific, and now Skype. Hmm. That's it. You don't, you don't do the Bajango stuff? You've not got like all your processors and cores showing you at all times what's no, going on? I no, don't, I don't like that, mostly because uh, I don't want to become obsessed with looking at measurements. If, there's, if I can't feel something wrong, I probably don't need to know about it uh it's not like you're going to like, I, I don't i don't want to be looking at dials i don't and also i don't want the fact that the dials are like i don't even like keeping activity monitor open because the idea that it is running through the process table and you know updating its ui every couple of seconds it's like that is more work than my mac is doing a lot of the time when i'm just staring at the screen anyway so i prefer not to have something repeatedly polling temperatures fan speeds and updating its display uh i'd rather just you know, have the machine at idle be actually idle. So I don't need any blinking lights or anything like that. And I tend to keep my menu bar fairly clean of icons. I do like Twitterific in particular on the Mac. I do like that's a menu bar icon. I hide the dock icon. Same thing with drag thing. I hide the dock icon of things that I think of as part of the interface. And Twitterific is one of those things. And so is Wedge, my old app.net client that I don't run that often because app.net is kind of uh, dwindling these days. Uh, So those are the things I keep in the menu bar. And Time machine and kit up there just because I want to see I want to know when it's backing up. Uh and I want to know when the last backup was and occasionally I want to stop it. When I do podcasts, I turn off time machine. I also quit Dropbox, which I also did, which is normally used in the menu bar. Uh I quit that during pod I, I do a lot of stuff for in sort of podcast mode. Just this is kind of a vestige of when I had spinning discs. When I had spinning discs, having Dropbox syncing and time machine backup running might interfere with audio recording just because of how overburdened my poor system was and also you know uh backblaze running in the background backing stuff up uh, with ssds i could probably leave all that stuff running but i still turned off so there's a few icons that are missing from my menu bar but in general i usually try to keep it concise up there yeah kind of a checklist guy before i do a podcast i'm the same way I turn off a whole bunch basically everything you just described and then i arrange my windows so i've got the you know, I can see how the recording's doing, but I can also have the window with my notes in it in front of the microphone. It's it's all these things you go through, right? Yep. And that's like my usual, if I was doing ATP or something, like we have a, a chat window, an IRC window. So what I do is I minimize all my colloquy windows except for the ATP chat window and I actually move the ATP chat window into a new location 
for the podcast recording. So I just have the show notes over here and the Skype window over here. God, I wish the Skype window could be smaller. It's such a mess that gigantic window that has no information that I care about in it, but I need to keep it there just for the little chat, you know, the side channel chat, which I, it was just like a little sliver of the chat is showing because it needs to show me this giant thing of people's avatar. Anyway, I hate Skype's interface, but I've got Skype, I've got call recorder, my chat window and my show notes. And that's sort of my arrangement for doing podcasts. And yeah, Dropbox quit time machine, uh, disabled, uh, and Backblaze uh, inactive. Do you think Skype's interface is getting any better or worse? I have not upgraded to Skype 7. It keeps telling me to update because I'm always paranoid about updating. I think it got way worse with like whatever it was, version 5, where they put it all into one window. It is yeah. super terrible because it wants to be this giant massive window and I want it to be tiny. It's like, I just want the chat part and maybe the part that shows me the current call. Like, you can't... It's When you try to shrink it, certain regions have a, a minimum size that is way too big. Like, I would like to make my Skype window vertically shorter, but I can't because it will, like, I think maybe I can't make it smaller at all, but if I do make it smaller, it will cut into the, the little chat area that already I can only see three lines of text in. Like, it, yeah. won't, it won't shrink the avatars or whatever. I hate the Skype UI. I really hate it. The one thing about Skype I've never figured out is it's, of all the applications I use, it's the one that moves things around the most. I feel like every show we do, they, they've they moved something that I need to do in Skype to a different location. And I don't, I don't know what, who's in charge of this, but it doesn't seem like anybody has decided to let's, let's decide on where we're going to put this one button that users may use every time they use the application and move it to a different place next week. And it's like they think you, when you're using Skype, you want to have a Skype window filling most of your screen. And I don't, I want Skype to be practically invisible. Like I don't yeah. want any part of the UI on my screen. Like it, right now it's, it's taking up so much room to just show me nothing that I'm interested in. The one thing I'm interested in, the current call, it says current ka dot, 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 because I have that thing made as small as I can. And <laughs> yeah. I can't even see the full time on it. Like that's the one thing I'm interested in. And it has to be shrunken up in there because I'm trying to make the window narrow, but it wants to show me giant avatars of people with this weird background. And oh, no, I, this is the problem. We try to jam a bunch of stuff into a single window. If that window is large and those regions are, are of the importance that is proportional to their their size on the screen then you're fine but that is not the case with this ui so i i just i make it as small as i can and i try to ignore it over there in the corner hey as a follow-up to your yosemite review i know that you had some problems with the user interface um now that it's been out a while how are you adjusting to it i think what i wrote in my review uh, my opinion has not changed i thought it might change but like because sometimes using it for real instead of you, I had been using it for months, you know, obviously with all the developer builds and everything, but sometimes using it for real changes your opinion. And it hasn't in this case. I still like the overall look. I still think it's very nice and clean. I still think the use of transparencies, particularly in sidebars is a big mistake. Um, maybe if uh, my opinion has changed a little bit, it's the, the thing where the, the, the window content shows through in the toolbars, like in Safari, I thought that would bother me more than it does. Like, as I said in the review, um, I like it aesthetically. I think it leads to some very cool looking UI and it's, it's more interesting than a boring gray toolbar, but I thought it might start to bother me. And now that I've sort of just come to accept it, I, I continue to appreciate the sort of pretty pastel effects that it does sort of the tie dye look or whatever. And the downsides have not really bugged me that much so that is the one place where i can say maybe i've softened a little bit on it but the sidebar transparency i just hate it every day and i wish i could get rid of it without getting rid of all the other effects like if you do reduce transparency it goes off everywhere and i like it yeah. in most places just the the sidebar the source list just 
terrible. I bet they dial it back whenever they do the next update. I hope they do. And it's just a choice of defaults because you, if as a developer, you can not make it transparent, but applications that were released before Yosemite even existed, they just get the default. And, and you know, Outlook is one of them. Outlook, it's like, well, they, you know, they didn't update it for Yosemite. As soon as Yosemite came out, Outlook sidebar became translucent because it's just the way it was. And the developer hasn't changed that. And I get around it more or less by making sure I have a bunch of white text editor windows behind my Outlook window at all times. <laughs> so, so that my Outlook sidebar doesn't look like a muddy mess because yeah. you know, I've got my background at work is a picture of my son in a, in a pumpkin patch. So it's all orange, uh, you know, really deep oranges. And the last thing I want in Outlook is my sidebar to, ha- to have this rusty orange showing through it all. It's just, it's ugly. It makes the text less readable and it, it really bothers me. So I wish I could get rid of that. Well, hopefully next year. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that bad, though, because if I look at my screen right now, I don't have a single window visible that has a sidebar like that in it because I'm not running Outlook at home, and all my other windows don't have translucent sidebars. And when I in the Finder, I don't I don't use the sidebar in the Finder, so I don't see it there. So it doesn't mess with me too much. Oh, the one place it really... This is not really the Ford of Yosemite, but like iTunes 12 trying to be all Yosemite-like in the mini player where it tries to superimpose a scale version of the album art into the formerly yeah. gray background of the mini player. Yeah. With a random, uh, seemingly random colors, but yeah. <sighs> what a mess. Like it just makes it ugly. It doesn't make it attractive, especially when I'm like, you know, I'm skipping through tracks, you know, I have it paused and I'm skipping through a random play thing to find another track that I like. I got to wait for it to change the color of the UI. Every time I hit the right arrow button, it's just, that's not working for me. You know, iTunes has always felt to me, or at least for a long time now, like the, the UI experimental app at Apple. It's like, they always let, let the guys over there say, okay, we'll just try something different. And a lot of times I used to think that that was the direction of the interface. Like you'd look at iTunes and say, okay, this is where they're heading. Cause they're always changing things here, but it doesn't even seem like it matches up with what they do later, but it's still, even to this day, it feels like the iTunes is just, it's on a different track altogether. Yeah, it's a lot of weird custom UI. Like, I feel like they're not using standard controls for a lot of the things they're doing. They're sort of, in this case, kind of aping the look of the rest of the operating system with custom code that is not related to any standard control that regular developers can use. And it's just, it's just odd. About once a year, the whole thing goes around the internet about iTunes needs to be broken up into individual pieces and it's too big and unwieldy and we need to do stuff. Where are you on that? Uh, I think if things worked better in it or were arranged better in it there would be less of that but that's not the case it's kind of like we were just discussing about skype with the one big window when you have when you try to stick to a single window application like oh simplicity single window application but you try to put so much functionality in it there's just not that much room in a single window and you you end up with like this this one window is like this arena in which you know you have these buttons that change the arena from like the ice arena to the fire arena to the whatever it's like you're changing the whole application within this one window it's like well it's one window it's simple right no it's not simple it's it's one window that transforms into 50 different things and you have to try to find a region of the window like well this is for switching between your playlists but also your ipods but then you can pick movies and also store like those are all the same things well okay we'll put these up and now they're icons in the upper left upper upper left and the playlists are on the sidebar but those things are the source lists are over there and so they, they keep moving things around to try to come up with some kind of logical arrangement and at this point there is no logical arrangement it's just what people get used to and people got used to the sidebar and then they got rid of it and the sidebar made no sense logically but at least people had figured out how to use it so now people are angry because you just moved their stuff and it's like well i knew where it was before and now it's not so how do i get the sidebar back and 
eventually, you know, people will get used to where they are now. If they stay there long enough, then people will complain again. It's just not a good application. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hope, hopefully they'll do something about it. But we've been saying that for a while. Yeah. yeah and splitting it up, like, it's not... The, the way out of this is... I think we talked about it on ACP a while back. But if features age out of it, then you can cut them. Like, if they could... I, I assume this is still in there or they haven't used it for forever. If I take a music CD and stick it into my Mac, because my Mac still has an optical drive, I'm assuming in iTunes I can, I can you know, convert the tracks in that CD to AAC. Uh, that functionality can probably be removed from iTunes sometime in the near future, just because Apple will stop selling Macs uh, entirely that have optical drives. Have they stopped entirely? I think maybe there's still... No, there's a there's a 13-inch MacBook Pro. Yeah, but but More anyway, level. eventually eventually, you would assume that they can safely re- remove that feature. And then people will complain because they're like, hey, what if I want to rip things? Now i got to buy a third-party program and it kind of annoys me. But like, features should eventually age out of that application. Um, it would be nice if all the iOS management aged out of it. It's Apple's own stupid fault that hasn't happened because it's like, well, for years now, you've been able to buy an iOS device and never hook it up to your Mac. You know, with all the cloud stuff and everything, you don't need a Mac to do anything with it, right? But except when you want to do certain things like, oh, well, I have a movie file and I want to drag that onto my thing. It's like unless you know how to sort of throw it in your Dropbox and use a Dropbox client and do this or whatever. The only way to, you know, sometimes the only way to manually sync ebooks so they could be viewed via an application is there's still lots of reasons that you have to connect your thing to iTunes, then drag some file into the secret little region that you know where to get to when you connect your device and go to apps and scroll down to the little documents and put the it's so terrible. Yeah. If they just get rid of those last few things, then there should be no more reason that we have to connect our iOS device to a computer except to back up. And then you could just have it part, be part of the OS. Oh, I see you've connected an iOS device. Do you want me to back it up? And that's like, you don't even need a separate app for that. They could just be part of the OS. Or, or you can make an app for it, whatever. Remove that from iTunes entirely. Um, As you were talking, I was thinking, it, it, it reminds me of the Microsoft's, you know, Microsoft Office problem. It's like they've got this app that's got so much bloat in it and they just can't let go of anything. Well, uh, Microsoft does let go of things uh, slowly. I mean, they have to keep the, the functionality in there for backward compatibility, but they don't have to let you make create new things with it. It's a little bit different for a document-based application. This is kind of like a service-based application or hub-based application. And I, I think there is a way forward to remove functionality from it, but we just want it to work. And the, even the features that it has sometimes with the, the iOS thinking that it doesn't work quite right. Or, I mean, it's difficult because it's kind of like your, your avenue of last resort where you're like, Oh, well, I can do an iTunes backup and I can restore from the backup in iTunes or, you know, sometimes, yeah. you know, go into recovery mode and connect up to iTunes. So it's difficult to get rid of that entirely. It probably would have been better if that wasn't, if that was separate, but because of it's the origin of sort of connecting an Apple device to computers with the iPod and it made sense for it to be connected to iTunes the iPhone just kind of slid into that, and I don't know. It's it's a difficult situation. I assume it will sort itself out sometime in our lifetime, but right now we're in the midst of the, the bad times. Uh, it seems like it's been a long time. It's been a long time <laughs> of bad times, yeah. The, um, you know, John, I, I just wanted to thank you for coming on the show again and, and for everything you contribute to the Internet. Uh, you know, ATP, Accidental Tech Podcast, is just one of the premier Apple podcasts you guys cover a lot more than apple but the apple stuff you cover is just so stellar and then the stuff you do on incomparable i just love it i mean you and i have a lot of similar i think we're about the same age and we have a lot of the similar tastes in popular culture and so often i mean you, you always have an opinion but you've always got a reason as well and that's what i love about the stuff you do and uh thanks for bringing all of that to all of us 
Well, thanks for having me. Hopefully it won't be three years next time. Yeah, we'll yeah. get you back sooner. We, we, I, I, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot from the listeners of, of where we blew it, where we didn't follow up with more questions on you. So, I mean, it took us two hours to get to iTunes. How did we let that happen, Katie Floyd? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, we blew it. Well, John, where can everybody find you these days? Where, where's the best place to send people? Uh, I think I'm most active on Twitter these days, believe it or not. Uh, it's my last name, Syracusa on Twitter. Um, I You just mentioned the XNL Tech Podcast, which I do every week. I am slightly less frequently on The Incomparable. Uh, XNL Tech Podcast is atp.fm, and The Incomparable is theincomparable.com. Uh, and I have a website that I should write things for, but that I almost never do, called hypercritical.co. And you can at least go there to find links to my old writing and find links to the podcast that I'm doing and stuff like that. All right, and we'll have links to all of that on our website and our show notes, which you can find at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. And then you can also find us on Twitter. The show is MacPowerUsers. I'm Katie Floyd, and David is Max Sparky. We will see you all next week. Bye.